Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. There will be no funny intro this month. Aw. Hey, Ken, how you doing? <laughs> Fine, how are you? I'm doing all right. And uh, to our listeners, welcome to the Open Apple Podcast. This is episode number 17. This will be published in early July, actually probably right before Kansas Fest. Yes, we're going to Kansas yes, Fest. Yes, we're going to Kansas Fest. And you should, too. That's right. We're going to Kansas Fest, and you can, too. <laughs> Kansas Fest. You, you can Kansas Fest. I think this is the 24th annual Kansas Fest. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think some of the official documentation might promote this as the 23rd, but the Kansas Fest Wikipedia page recently got updated with a more specific chronology that indicates 2012 makes 24. Well, if Wikipedia says so, then it's good enough for me. That's right. So anything new with you lately, Mike? Um, well, let's see. Other than Colorado burning down, not a whole lot. That hasn't affected you directly yet, has it? It is not. No, the two the two big fires uh, were one of them was up north and near Fort Collins, and that one's they're getting that uh, contained. I think it's sixty five or seventy percent, something like that, right now. And the other one's down near Colorado Springs, and that's less contained. Last I heard, it was only fifteen percent. Yeah, that that one's still doing a lot of damage, and and uh, it's it's a pretty serious issue. But as far as geography, it's a good fifty miles away from me. Well, as long as other people are tr in trouble and you're not, I guess that's fine, right? Yeah, pretty much. No, then I can just no. sit back and watch on the news. <laughs> no, but all seriousness, this is rather troubling, and our hearts go out to anybody who's lost their homes or had to evacuate, and we certainly hope that the brave men and women who are fighting this fire are able to find the energy to continue their jobs and keep everybody safe, including themselves. Absolutely. What about you, Ken? What's going on in your part of the world? It's actually been a busy June for me. In the time since we last recorded a show, I went to three different conferences or conventions. Wow, you've been busy. Yeah, that makes seven I've been to this year, and we're, we haven't even gone to Kansas Fest yet. You've been busy. I have. I first went to WordCamp, as I mentioned I would, in New York City, where I met with representatives of Ivan Expert, including but not limited to Ivan Drucker, who comes to Kansas Fest every year, starting in 2009. Mm-hmm. And we went to WordCamp, which was pretty cool. I got to learn all about my favorite blogging software. But the unexpected surprise was meeting Jasmine Hupp, who is the director of marketing for TechServe, which is New York City's oldest Apple specialist. Really? She led me a short ways away to her store and gave me a backstage tour of TechServe, including the classroom where they have a variety of Apple artifacts and also the break room where the employees have demonstrated their own unique brand of humor and also the various kinds of ways that they have found to repurpose and employ old hardware, not just Macintoshes, but also pinball machines and typewriters. That sounds like fun. It was kind of cool. And I will have, by the time this podcast airs, a photo gallery of behind-the-scenes pictures of TechServe Posted to my blog with permission from Ms. Hupp. Excellent. And where else did you go? Uh, while I was in New York City, that was the only place I went. But the next weekend, I went to a demo party in Boston known as At Party. Have you heard of that before? I've heard of it. I'm not familiar with the goings-on of that particular convention. I think they even had a Kickstarter a year or two ago. The event was founded two years ago here in Massachusetts, but this is the first year it's been held in Boston, which makes it much more accessible. The event is called At Party. And I 
was not an attendee this year, but the organizer invited uh, local community representatives of interest to the audience to come speak for a few minutes. And I said, well, I can represent Kansas Fest. Do you want me to come speak for the five minutes that you're allotting for that purpose? She said, sure. I said, okay, what aspect of the Kansas Fest or Apple II topics do you want me to discuss? I can do this, 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 or this. She said, gosh, that's great. How about you talk about all of them and I give you a half hour? <laughs> like, okay. So I put together a Prezi and... I'm sorry, you put together a what? A Prezi, P-R-E-Z-I. It's a web-based presentation software alternative to PowerPoint or Keynote. Oh, right. I think we've talked about that before. Perhaps not on this show, but you saw me use it last August at the Denver Apple Pie. And it works well? It worked great. I actually used that exact same presentation as a model for this year's presentation. Cool. I'll check that out. Yeah, I have not seen a video of my presentation yet. The audio was streamed live online while people were chatting in IRC listening to it. And you can go listen to the audio. And what's cool is that simultaneously they captured the transcript of the chat room and it plays back at the same time as the speech. So you can actually see what people were talking about while I was speaking. That's pretty cool. It is cool, but the coolest thing about App Party was when I got to the event, the organizer warned me that the building would be locked and I have to call to be let in, which was fine. So I'm standing outside on the street in front of a locked door waiting for her to come down while another attendee of App Party shows up also waiting to be let in. So while we're killing time, I introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Ken. And he says, hi, I'm Mike. And we start talking. And you know, me being the line of work that I am, I basically start interviewing him. So where are you from? What do you do? How long have you been here? Have you been to this event before? Are you going to be competing in any of the compos? And he said, no, I won't be competing. What about you? Are you competing? I said, no, I'm actually here just to give a presentation. Oh, what are you presenting on? He asked. And I said, well, the organizer said anybody who is of a community who would be of interest to the retro computing audience at at party is welcome to come speak for five minutes and he said oh what community do you belong to and i said the apple II. and he looks at me and he says you're ken gagney <laughs> i said well, well first i think okay he probably just looked at the speaker schedule and remembered my name and he said no i listen to your podcast every month wow I said yeah i know that i knew that you were from massachusetts but i never put two and two together to think that you might actually be here this is kind of cool I'm like, oh, you didn't recognize my sonorous voice? <laughs> but that was kind of neat. Yeah, you're famous. Yay. We're famous. <laughs> I'm sure if you were there, he would have recognized you just the same. So Mike from Littleton, it was great to meet you. And then the next weekend, I went to TEDx in Boston, which is like the TED Talks where sure. they have yeah. a day of, tw of about two dozen speakers, in this case local ones, discussing the latest and greatest developments in technology, entertainment, and design. Yeah, I've actually got a, a, an app on my phone now that allows me to watch TED videos. It's pretty cool. Oh, there's also a new podcast app that Apple has come out with for iOS. Yeah, I was reading about that. Have you played with it? I played with it a little bit last night. It, I'm not really sure it's necessary because they already have both music and iTunes apps for iOS, and now they have podcasts too. Yeah, but aren't there – I read somewhere um, probably on one of the Apple news websites that they're re revamping iTunes and maybe that some of these functions are going to be separated out of the main iTunes application. That's possible. I mean, I guess that would kind of make sense. I see the podcast app being aimed more at podcast discovery than at podcast playback. Okay. It does both, but I'm already familiar and comfortable with how the music app plays podcast so i don't really need another app to do that 
Well, any improvement that they can make to iTunes, at least on the Windows platform, is, is going to be an improvement. So, And even on the Mac, it, it, I think it works well, but it's also becoming a little bloated. Yeah. Well, it's it's a 10-year-old interface now, and so I, I think it's it's certainly time to to revisit the way it works and how it looks. I remember when I first switched to OS X, I was looking for an OS X version of my favorite MP3 player, which was Sound Jam. Do you remember that? Um, I have not used Sound Jam, but I have heard of it. I think it was by Cassidy and Green, and I couldn't find an OS X version. Then I remembered somewhere I had read a story about them, and I thought, oh, that's right. They changed the name of Sound Jam when they ported it to OS X. Now it's called iTunes. Ah, that's right. Yeah. But there were some really cool features and visualizers I liked about Sound Jam. Like there was an acapella mode where it could strip the vocals out of a song and just play back the instrumentation. Oh, that's cool. I've never seen iTunes do that. Speaking of iTunes, we have gotten some wonderful reviews submitted to our podcast listing in the iTunes directory without having ever once on this show asked anybody to do so. So thank you very much, everybody, for the kind words. In fact, I think we now have the most reviews of any Apple II podcast in iTunes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Seriously, though, thank you guys. We really appreciate that. Yeah, we do. And some of the commentary is it's not only encouraging to let to know that people are listening to the show and further that people appreciate the show. But some of those specific comments like you and I are the Jay and a silent Bob of the <laughs> Apple II world. I, I guess. Sure. Yeah, I, I can see that. I'm not sure I can hear it. Well, if one of us were truly silent, Bob, it wouldn't be much of a podcast. <laughs> right. I, I rec- as I recall, he only, he only spoke once a movie or something. So, well, Maybe this reviewer was referring to the third host that's on the show right now who oh, doesn't speak. Maybe so. Yeah. I'd have thrown a Triscuit every now and then. Yeah. It's nice to get those reviews reviews though and, and hear what people are thinking because I think I think didn't somebody one person left us a one star review and didn't tell us why. Yeah, there was no comment associated with that because iTunes doesn't require you to leave qualitative feedback when you issue a star rating. You can do just the star if you prefer and do that anonymously, or you can add a synonymous byline to a qualitative review, which that's what I'm referring to when I say we have more reviews than anybody. But you're right. We've gotten all five-star reviews except for a single four-star and a single one-star. I I bet it was Carrington that left us that one-star. I just think he's jealous. I do too, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, it, it's it's really cool to see those reviews, and it's encouraging because you know it's it's nice to know that people are actually paying attention and listening. One listener wrote in actually several months ago, and I apologize for not having shared his commentary on the air like I said I would. It was not intentional. It's just that we had a unique setup for the next month regarding the introduction to the show, and we just never got back around to everything that fell through the cracks that one month. So, Neville Ridley-Smith, here is your letter. You write to us to say, Before Wizardry was properly released, a beta version called Dungeons of Despair, and supposedly the first ever public beta of any software, was released at the Boston Apple Fest, probably around 1981. It's like a holy grail item. I've even contacted Robert Woodhead, the original creator of Wizardry, and he doesn't have a copy. Perhaps if you mention it on your podcast, someone somewhere may have a copy. Have you heard of this, Mike? I've not. I, I'm not as familiar with the history of wizardry, but uh, that sounds like a neat item if somebody can dig that up. Yeah, he's basically saying that just like Ultima had Akalabeth, wizardry had Dungeons of Despair. That's a really cool origin story that I was not aware of. Yeah, me either. So if anybody can write in, even if you don't have a copy of the item, but 
if you have any details about that product or some experience having played it when you were younger, that'd be cool to hear too. Definitely. Yeah. And speaking of hearing things, sounds like you have a new mic. I do. This is, I, I've upgraded, I guess, to the Audio Technica AT2035. I previously had the 2020. Um, and so I'm interested to, to hear from, I guess, you and maybe our listeners if I sound better or worse or more drunk or whatever. Does it have a drunk filter? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so what new features does this new mic bring our mic? According to Audio Technica's page and the reviews that I've read, it's it's similar mechanically. It's a cardioid mic, it's and it's about the same as the 2020, um, but the reviews all say that it's a lot quieter and um, more sensitive. So it's you end up with a better quality recording. Um, and I got this sort of as a package deal. It came with a nice XLR cable and a Blue Icicle preamp. And it feeds into this Blue Icicle preamp and then into the Mac that I'm recording on right now. So uh, it's a pretty neat setup, and I've had fun playing with it, and I hope it sounds okay. Were you dissatisfied with the mic you were using? No, actually, I have a a friend who is interested in getting into podcasting, um, and so he's going to be buying the 2020 from me and using that on his podcast. Not another Apple podcast. No, he's actually doing a Star Trek podcast. Oh, I'd listen to that. Yeah, and uh, he wants me to come on there i I don't i I don't really know that much about the details of trek he's definitely he's definitely a trek encyclopedia um, as far as his knowledge is is concerned but i think we'll have fun talking about it so i'm sure he knows that two episodes of the first season of star trek the next generation are going to be aired in high definition in theaters one night only monday july 23rd the day after k-fest ends yeah he bought his tickets the first 10 minutes they were available if that's anything like when they showed the original series, The Cage, on the silver screen, it's not going to be sold out. No, I don't think so. And the first season, Next Generation, wasn't the greatest either. Any other new hardware in your life? Well, not not necessarily new. Um, I did stumble across the very first modem I ever purchased uh, as I was rooting around down in the basement the other day. It's a Raycal Vedic. I think I'm pronouncing that properly. Uh, 300-1200 baud external modem. Um, I, I plugged it into my Apple IIe uh, the other day, and I used, uh, I booted up ASCII Express for the communications program, and it looks like the modem is working. It's responding to commands from from ASCII Express, but I don't know that I have AE Pro configured properly because it can't, it's not getting a, um, every time I try to dial, it just, all I get is that waiting for carrier message. It, it never actually picks up the dial tone, so I'm not sure if that's a configuration error with the software or there's something wrong with the modem, but I'm going to have to figure that out, I think. And how fast is this puppy? Uh, it, it is a blazing 1,200 bits per second. Wow, that's actually... So that's like four times faster than... Wait, what was the Apple Cat modem? I think the original Apple modems... Well, the original modems were 110 bits per second, the, the 110s. And then 300 came next, and then 1,200, then the 24, and on up the scale. I know when I bought it, there weren't any BBSs around that that even had 1,200 baud lines. For a long time, I didn't get to use that that speed, but you know, of course, as the years went by and the technology passed the modem up, eventually they stopped supporting the uh, 1,200 uh, baud lines, and that was pretty much the end of my BBSing days. Well, maybe you should bring it to Kansas Fest and hook it up to your dorm room line. Well, I intend to do that, in fact, because I will be uh, at Kansas Fest for the entire uh, the entire week. So I'm happy that that's going to happen. I never doubted it. 
I think you did. <laughs> You'll be presenting as well? I I will be. Yep, I'll be giving a, a revamped version of my standard annual Apple III presentation. The other ones that I was thinking of doing, were, uh, there was the, the Apple III, the, the business basic introduction, but I didn't have enough time to put, put together a decent presentation on that one. And um, the Star Saga, the Star Saga game, which I don't, I, I'm still looking forward to, to maybe figuring out how we're going to do that. I've been working with Andy Malloy to try and make that happen, but I don't, I don't know how, I don't know what that would look like at this point. So. Well, I hope that you two can put your heads together and come up with something because I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. I just don't know how to do it. I'm thinking my, my initial thought would be like to have like a late night session or, or one that's not during the regular hours so that we could extend it if we needed to. Cause Star Saga, you, you're not going to get a good game in 45 minutes or an hour. So it's quite the commitment. It is, yes. Well, I've committed to a few sessions of my own, and I think the newest one to mention on this podcast is the podcasting panel. The host of the Retro Computing Roundtable will be attending Kansas Fest, two-thirds of them for the first time ever. They'll be doing a live podcast, which we generally don't do. But in addition to that, I've roped them into a panel because... Earl Evans, Carrington Vanson, David Grealish, and I all have something in common, which is in addition to collaborative retro computing podcasts, we also have solo podcasts that we pursue on our own time. And I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at how we balance those two commitments, the different philosophies and setups that each one requires, and just in general, comparing our retro computing shows, what we love the most, what we find the most challenging, how we prepare for each episode and our relationship with our audience. That panel will be moderated by Dr. Steve Weirich, who is a listener of all these shows. Wait, so you're going to be on a panel with a competition? They're not the competition. You traitor. You turncoat, how dare you? We had David on the show, and we let him live. I'm walking off this show. I should be so lucky. What else are you presenting at Kansas Fest? Are you not doing a Juice GS panel this year? I did a Juice GS focus group a couple of years ago, and I don't feel the need to revisit that right now. I will be having a 15-minute session Saturday morning, which is usually reserved for new product announcements, and we will have some new products. In fact, I think the most new products Juice GS has ever unveiled in a single year. Oh, can't wait to see that. Yeah, and some of them are still being deliberated among the staff of whether or not we should release certain or announce certain products. So I am hopeful that the number of products that we'll be announcing will grow even from today. But in addition to that, I am doing a session on Kickstarter, which I think I may have mentioned before, and also WordPress for dummies, basically how to install and set up a WordPress site, especially if you want to use it for Apple II content. Cool. And how you love in Joomla. Uh, so much that I switched over to WordPress. <laughs> you didn't like Joomla? Uh, I couldn't figure it out. And frankly, I didn't have enough time. I don't have enough time to sit down and try and learn another um, hosting platform. I, I'm not crazy about a lot of stuff that I see in WordPress, but it does work pretty well. And the more I use it, the less I hate it. So Better the devil you know, right? Indeed. Well, even if we may disagree on WordPress, and I hope maybe you'll come to my session and learn to love the WordPress and at least maybe pick up a few tricks and see how it is that I put up with all your questions every day. Indeed, I will. I'm sure I'll have more questions to annoy you with. That's why we'll be using back channel, and that's why I'll be able to mute you. This is Randy Brandt, AppleWorks Product Manager, and I hope to see you at Kansas Fest when we talk about the history of AppleWorks. Our guest this month is none other than the man behind the CFFA card, uh, Rich Dreher. Did I pronounce that right, Rich? 
Yep, that's pretty good. Okay, and so your your latest card is obviously the CFFA three thousand, and it looks like that thing's been selling like hotcakes. Uh, it sure has, actually. Um, this is going to be the largest batch of CFFAs I've uh, ever put together. It uh, it's sold out about it's sold about half of the batch so far, a little over half. And that's five hundred cards in this batch, right? That's right. Yeah. Plus the three hundred that you sold last year. That's correct. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. that's a lot. And and this is you know obviously our listeners already know this, but this is certainly not the first card in the CFFA family. This this goes back almost ten years now, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. Um, I think two thousand two was when it really started. I've done seven. This would be the seventh batch of cards. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a lot of cards you, you put out there. Uh, obviously, the the uh, CFFA is, has evolved over time. Um, the card that that you're selling today, how, how close is it to the original card, and what sort of I don't know what sort of evolution are we looking at as far as the CFFA over the past ten years? Um, so the CFFA three thousand still has basically all the functionality um, that the original card had, which is to put a CF card you know, on the Apple II bus and allow software to, to access it. Um, now, of course, the CFFA 3000 adds um, a, another dimension so you can store floppy images on the uh, Flash media and access that uh, those floppies as if that uh, has convinced the Apple II that it's a real floppy drive. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that I wish I had done from the beginning, but it was significantly more complicated um, than just making a, essentially a hard drive card for the Apple II. And is this something that you've done on your own, or have you had people behind the scenes with the hardware or the software? Um, it's actually uh, it started out um, kind of as a, a effort between myself and a friend of mine uh, named Chris, um, who I did the hardware and he uh, helped me out with the the software drivers to uh, to uh, interface to ProDOS. It's kind of an interesting story, actually. So after the uh, the CFFA was um, out and selling. Uh, probably in the first batch at some point, I got an email from from someone who wasn't a customer and had basically downloaded, took the time to download the firmware and take a look at it. And he sent me an email saying, oh, by the way, there's a couple instructions in your firmware that aren't going to be interrupt safe. And, you know, you might want to, you might want to put a, you know, clear interrupts here and, and, uh, and, and fix that because it could be a problem on such and such a particular model. And I was like, wow, okay, that's somebody who's particularly in tune with the Apple II, and um, um, I looked into it a little bit and took his advice. And a little bit later, I got another email from the same person um, saying, well, this other thing, you know, isn't quite right, and you might want to look at this, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, I just decided to, you know, why don't you give me a call, and let's, you know, chat. And I wanted to get to know who this person was and so forth. And it turned out to be Dave Lyons of Apple. And um, Dave is a huge influence in the Apple II community. And this is how I got introduced to Dave, and um, Dave, over the years, has become more and more integral to the project. So, indeed, there are people like Dave who've contributed heavily to the CFFA project. And I would say the CFFA 3000 project really wouldn't have come together without um, without his assistance. He's doing the vast majority of the of the firmware on the, on this product. And where does David Schmidt come into play? Um, Dave, David Schmidt has been extremely helpful also. He uh, really came on the scene with the CFFA 3000 and has been just a godsend when it comes to testing the card. He did, he did the manual or most of the manual, and he's just had a ton of input to the product and really helped us push it to a usable final state. So I can't uh, say enough about David Schmidt and the help he, and his contribution. 
the CFFA may go back 10 years, but I presume your involvement with the Apple II goes back even further. What, how did you get started in this scene? Um, so, yeah, that goes back to basically high school. I uh, went to a high school of about 400 kids, and we had a math resource center, which had two, it had four computers in it, um, had two Apple IIs and two TRS-80s. It actually had a Decorator 1200 terminal over to some other company in town that had a VAX. And that was the extent of the computer systems at our uh, high school. Me and basically my extended group of friends were all sort of the nerds and the computer fans, and we really uh, gravitated toward the toward the Apple IIs. A friend of mine, uh, Steve Scott, he his uh, parents purchased an Apple II for him, and um, boy, that uh, <laughs> that sent me into huge envy mode. I remember uh, wanting my own Apple II, and basically, I ended up begging, you know, my mom to purchase me an Apple II. Also, I really didn't understand. I think I was what uh, 16 or 17 at the time. I don't think I really understood the kind of financial burden that was actually would put on you know on her, and uh, we certainly weren't uh, weren't wealthy. But in, in the end, she relented and she uh, purchased the Apple II. Um, I talk about this on my website in the background section a little bit. Um, I didn't find out till I don't know, 15 years later or something that she actually had to take a loan to buy that. It was about $3,000. We went in there and got the whole setup, the printer and two disk drives and all that stuff. So so uh, the Apple II started for me in, in, in high school. Since I had an Apple II, a lot of times friends would come over and we would have late night programming uh, sessions that went all the way through college where we'd uh, stay up all night programming and then end up skipping classes in college, you know, the next day. <laughs> so we're skipping the morning classes anyway. So how do you go from a high school geek begging his mom for an Apple II to one of the most successful Apple II hardware developers of the 21st century? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I think that's uh, dumb luck. Um, back in 2001 and 2002, when I pulled my uh, Apple II out of the closet to play with it, found I ended up you know, trashing a disc or a diskette, one of the few diskettes I had left. I think I realized, just like everybody else, that, okay, this isn't going to work, right? The other thing I, I was pretty startled by was the fact that the Apple II didn't have a hard drive because, you know, it had been, I don't know how many years, more than a decade, and you just sort of forget, right? It's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, of course this didn't have a hard drive. Right? This had floppy diskettes. It, we're spoiled. And we look back and go, well, that's cute. That's quaint. But... I want a hard drive, right? I want to, I want, you know, near online storage. I don't want to fool around with floppies because we don't do that anymore. So I had set out to find a solution and I remember going on eBay and buying a, a CMS SCSI card and I bought a SCSI hard drive and tried to get the entire, you know, operation to work. And so I had some kind of a storage solution and I couldn't get it to work. I don't, I don't know, you know, if you guys have ever fooled around with the CMS products or any of the SCSI solutions, but I couldn't figure it out. And, um, yeah, so I, I don't know if it was a hardware issue or I didn't have the right versions of the drivers or, or what exactly was wrong, but it just didn't work. And so then I went looking for, I thought, well, there must be somebody, you know, made an IDE solution. I came across a guy in France who, I think his name was, uh, Stefan Gouliard, and he had done an IDE interface for the Apple II. So I started, well, I'll build that project. And, um, you know, he said that, well, the software wasn't quite done. His And he was he was using FAT16, so he wasn't doing a native ProDOS image or DOS 3.3 on the hard drive. He was he was just using FAT. So I wasn't quite sure where that was going to go, but I thought, well, let's, you know, let's, let's build that. Um, that turned out to have some issues um, later on. I didn't know until much later on that there were a couple little design issues. Um, 
with with that hardware design. I couldn't get it to work, and I couldn't get it to work, and a couple more weekends went by, and finally I, just in desperation, thought, well, I'll try Compact Flash um, in its true IDE mode. Um, that seemed to work a lot better, although still not perfectly, and that's kind of how the project switched from being an IDE you know, hard drive interface to be a compact flash interface. It was really just because the compact flash was uh, much more tolerant to some of the, the invalid or improper bus cycle signals that were being generated by the, by that interface. Anyway, so really it was dumb luck. I, I think I wanted the same thing everybody else wanted, which was um, a big fat storage device for the Apple II. I actually, you know, went, took the time to actually build one and get it working. And you finally got to meet some of your clients last year when you attended your first Kansas Fest. I sure did, yeah. Now, that's the neat thing about the CFFA, actually, is it? It's I, I wasn't really a part of the Apple II community or scene, you know, in that's that I didn't even know existed until I started working on this stuff. And um, there's really quite a thriving community, and I'm, and I'm really happy and proud to be a part of it now. I think it's great. I'm an Apple III fan. Um, I have several of them. And one of the great things about the CFFA is that it is compatible with the Apple III. Um, and I think, and the 3000 is as well. I, I'm just, I'm kind of interested in, in how that, uh, how that part of the development came to be. Um, so that, that's an area actually where, um, Dave Schmidt really uh, stepped up and, and made that happen. I actually don't own an Apple III and I've never, I've never tested the board myself in an Apple III. So um, David Schmidt and I think Dave Schmidt comes into this into the picture there too a little bit. Um, there seems to be a lot of Daves and Davids involved <laughs> with the Apple. I, I don't know how that uh, why that works out that way. But um, so David Schmidt wrote the the driver code. Um, well, you know, and that's not and there was a um, that may have been based on some of the previous work done by uh, Dale Jackson who. Who did some of the? Who did the original driver for the CFFA for the previous, you know, versions one and X and, and 2.0? So I don't actually take any credit for getting it to work in the in the Apple III. Okay, um, but I, I'm sure I'm glad it does. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. No, no, I know there's some limitations, um, but you'd have to talk to someone who owns an Apple III or you know David Schmidt or somebody to really understand what those limitations are. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. The leading item this month is one that we've already touched upon. That is the sale of the second batch of the CFFA 3000. And this topic is of the utmost importance and relevance to me, Ken Gagney, your co-host, because finally I'm going to count myself among the proud owners of a CFFA 3000, having missed the opportunity at Kansas Fest 2011 because at the time my Apple II was 2,000 miles away and I didn't see the relevance of owning a card I couldn't use, I finally have been reunited with my machine and have upgraded it with an order for CFFA 3000. So my question for you, Rich, is when the hell am I going to get my hands on it? Uh, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I am limiting myself to about 50 CFFA shipments uh, per week. And, well, I sure wish I could ship them a lot faster than that because I've got 500 sitting here. It turns out it's a ton of work, right? And program the boards, test all the boards, uh, get everything ready, um, and ship it out. And um, I originally thought I could do 100 on the previous batch of CFFA 3000s a week, and um, I, I missed that target the first week, and it dawned on me that I'm going to miss that target every week. So the realistic level is about 50 a week, so it just kind of depends on where you are in the uh, in the list. So it'll take you two and a half months to ship all these cards. Pretty much, yeah. That's that's right. And how many of those five hundred are spoken for? 
let me take a look, but it's over half now have, uh, have actually sold. 219 are remaining. So that's about 200 and 280 or so have sold. If somebody wants to claim one of those unspoken ones for it, they just go to shop.dreyer.com? .net. .net. Yep. Fantastic. You mentioned going to your website to look up some information, and last time I did that, I was intrigued to find that you are doing something I've never seen anybody else do, which is you list the cities and states where all your boards are being shipped to. In other words, where all your customers are. Why do you do that? That is a great question. I, I'm not sure how that started. Um, I think it was just uh, just for the interest and the fun of, of keeping track of, of um, where everybody is. I think there was a website that I got that for, the idea from that sold ham radio equipment. I could try to find that. I think it was Small Wonder Labs uh, did that for their sort of homebrew projects, and uh, that's where I got the idea. Do your customers know that you'll be doing that when they order with you? I guess not. Um, do you think that's inappropriate? Do you think I should revise that policy? I personally have no problem with it. If I bought, well, I have bought one of your cards, and when and if I see my city and state listed on your website, I'm not going to be complaining at all. But I know it's something that I've been thinking about. If you read my editorial on the latest Juice GS, it's something I've been trying to figure out where the balance is between bringing the community closer by letting each other know where we are versus respect for each other's privacy. You know, where's that line? Sure. You know, and, and you know, I looked at your list and I found that there's an Apple user just literally one town over from me. And since you don't give his name and postal address, obviously there's no way for me to communicate with him. So I don't consider what you're doing to be an invasion of privacy, but it's intriguing that there's somebody so close. And I, I just think it's fascinating that that information is out there. Yeah, actually. So I've had uh, quite a number of people, um, you know, email me and say, Hey, I see somebody in such and such town, uh, you know, bought one of your boards. Would you mind sending my information to that person and seeing if they'll, they'll respond and, so I've done that, you know, half a dozen times probably or something. So that's brought a few people together. Sometimes the person doesn't respond and, you know, that, that's, that's their, of course, prerogative. And you have no issues being that intermediary? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I certainly won't give out any personal information or, you know, just say, well, hey, uh, you know, here, I just, I always do it with a, with a blind, you know, so that they don't know. Neither person sees the other person's email unless they've specifically said, please send this to this to this person in this town. So Right, that's just the way to do it. I I can't ask you for anybody else's information, but you can send mine to other people's at my request. Right. Exactly. And Rich isn't the only uh, Apple II hardware guy that's been busy lately. Uh Mike Willegal, who has made the Apple Apple One brain board available, uh, has recently announced, he actually announced a couple of months ago that he would have uh, bare Mimeo boards available, and it looks like earlier this week he announced that the full kits will now be available again for purchase. Uh, the Mimeo One, of course, is the uh, an Apple One uh, replica board that you can build yourself, or for some extra money, I think he'll build it for you. I'm sorry, did you say the Mimeo One is an Apple One board? It's It's an Apple One replica board, yes. I thought that was called the brain board. Well, the the brain board is a a, a ROM card that goes in your Apple II and pretends to be an Apple One. Um, sort of, it's sort of like the uh, the the old uh, 
language cards that you could put in your Apple II where you could swap in Integer Basic or um, AppleSoft Basic. And his you can do that with, with the brain board as well, but he has made a, available a set of ROM chips so that you can turn your Apple II into an Apple I. The Mimeo I is actually a replica board where you get the, the board that looks like the old Apple I and the, the, the parts and things, and you put it together yourself. Oh, I see. So it's a standalone product more akin to Vince Briel's replica one. Exactly, yeah. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, yeah. And a couple of weeks, uh, a week or so before that, um, this is from an item actually that Sean Fahey posted on a2central.com. Mike is also making available his Super Proto board. According to the post, it'll sell for less than $100 for a kit. And the base feature set will include an onboard 32K EEPROM, which is programmable directly from the Apple II 6502 chip, uh, Glue Logic integrated 22V10 GAL, uh, data bus fully buffered with a 74LS245 PCB location for the 6522A VIA chip. Two general purpose proto areas, locations for more than five 300 mil dip chips. And, and we're getting into stuff that I have no idea what I'm talking about here. So, uh, Does it have a 64 megahertz RAM shaft with an optional upscoop RAM buffer? <laughs> well, you know what it does. <laughs> huh. So, but I, I think this this is a, a prototyping board, um, if I understand it correctly. I see. So, if you're interested in, in that level of hardware play, um, you can check all that out at uh, Mike's webpage, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Rich, you being one of the elite hardware developers, along with Mike, are you familiar with his work? Have you gotten to uh, collaborate with him in any way? Um, I haven't really collaborated, but I certainly have am familiar with his work. I did put together a. Um, uh, Mimeo One. I later sold that, uh, probably for cash flow related reasons. But um, um, he did he, you know, that. That uh, that that board is fantastic, right? I mean, he really put a lot of time into you know recreating and essentially cloning the Apple One, you know, down to the, basically the smallest details. So I, I was very impressed by that. Um, I did have a few email conversations with Mike related to um, the Super Proto. Um, just giving him some advice that, of a few things that I ran into uh, when I was doing uh, the CFFA as it relates to um, just the peripheral card design itself in, in general. And um, so it seems like there was a couple things that um, I was able to pass along that he, he made use of. So so hopefully that helped. Yeah, I don't, you know, Mike, it seems like he's doing some really good work. I know he also did some work on um, the Apple One cassette interface and he found a couple of very small changes that apparently had a very large impact on the reliability of the board. I think there was a, a, a 0.01 uh, microfarad cap that he changed to a 0.1 or, or vice versa and um, it had a dramatic impact on the uh, on the reliability of, of his cassette replica. So when are we going to see the CFFA for Apple One? Um, actually, I've had uh, a slightly a slight increase in the uh, or uptick in the number of requests for that. Um, that's been a pretty slow moving item, and to build up interest for another run, well, it's it's been six years now. It took three years to sell the first batch of a hundred, um, and it's been another three years. So my 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 plan is to is to build another batch this year before the year is out, and so I hope to basically commence that in the fall and have something by basically by winter time. Because, you know, if you were to bundle that with an actual Apple One and give it to Sotheby's to auction off. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> man, you could just be rolling in it. Yeah, I do wish uh, I had 
Yeah, I remember a year or two ago, an Apple One didn't sell on eBay for fourteen thousand dollars. You know that uh, maybe it wasn't a working model, but uh, that just shows you the the span, uh, the range of dollar amounts associated with the Apple One. Yeah, if one of those went today for fourteen thousand, I would just take all my savings yeah. and invest it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that's almost a guaranteed ROI right there. <laughs> that's right. For those who haven't heard, an Apple One did recently sell at Sotheby's. It's an auction house in New York City. And pr- the previous record was an Apple One that sold at Christie's of London for about, I think, 235000 United States dollars. This new auction broke that record. This Apple One sold for $374,500. Yeah, that's incredible. I think even if all of us pooled our money together, we still wouldn't be able to afford it. Certainly, these are not going to hobbyists or enthusiasts. These are going to collectors and museum owners and the like. I don't know that the owner of this particular auction has been identified. I know the Christie's of London auction did go to an Italian collector who hopes to open his own museum. I would imagine that's probably the case with this one, but who knows for sure. I say it's a lot of money, and I, um, you know, somebody with very deep pockets obviously um, bought it. Well, if you don't have three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, there's there was one that sold on eBay for seventy-five thousand dollars. The Houston Brothers, who earlier had an auction for various bits of ap- early Apple ephemera, uh, recently put uh, an Apple One for sale up, uh, put an Apple One up on uh, eBay, and it sold for seventy-five thousand six hundred dollars. If your pockets aren't quite as deep, maybe you can still afford one of those. Uh, there were brothers that worked at Apple um, in the early days, and, and they held on to a lot of uh, a lot of their hardware and the documentation, things like that. They auctioned off a bunch of it a year or so ago, um, and they put up recently put up an Apple One as well as uh, an MSI that was interestingly enough was used in Apple early Apple II software development and the movie War Games. That's right. Well, maybe not. Maybe not this particular. I don't one. think that specific MSI was in War Games. I don't want it. It's worthless. That's right. Well, <laughs> apparently eBay agreed with you because the MSI didn't sell. Ah. Uh, so Dick and Cliff, I think they were interviewed on Retro Matcast a couple of years ago. Yep, they've been on Retro Matcast, and they, they they had a great interview there um, on on that podcast. So I don't know that their Apple One on eBay was actually advertised as being in working condition like the one at Sotheby's was. Yeah, it was untested. And Mike Willegal was interviewed by Computer World Magazine regarding the Sotheby's auction. He said that that Apple One at Sotheby's was one of one of six known to be working. Hmm. And that's, I think there are, were 200 Apple Ones made. 50 are known to still exist, but only six are working. I guess it depends on your definition of working. I, I'm sure many of the ones that are technically now classified as non-working can be made to be working again. Yeah, well, that that two hundred and thirteen thousand dollar one that was not working when it sold, and the uh, the guy that bought it brought it back to, into working condition. And in fact, I think there's a video of them firing it up for the first time. And it didn't even have all the original parts when he bought it, anyway. Right, it had the the black sixty five hundred two and some other replacement parts that were in it. Hmm. I think Mike Mike uh, Willigal runs a sort of an Apple One registry, doesn't he? Where he, keep, where he keeps track of all the Apple Ones in the world. He does. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty extensive. Yeah. Well, back when. Apple was taking Apple One's back and trashing them in favor of the Apple II. Byte Magazine published Steve Wozniak's intention for what he wanted the Apple II to be when he was designing it. 
Well, he details the inner workings of the Apple II and, and what his design philosophy was uh, when he made certain decisions about how the Apple II should work and why he used parts in a certain area and that sort of thing. It was interesting to read an article written by one individual about what he wanted for a machine because you wouldn't see that in today's uh, design-by-committee philosophy. Right. Well, yeah, the Apple II obviously was designed when it was still just a handful of people. And it, and the Apple II was basically, the, the hardware portion of it anyway was all Wozniak. Yeah, there just aren't many products nowadays that are solely an individual's vision realized. Right. It, it looks like the that article, the design of the Apple II, was pretty well fleshed out by this by the time he wrote that article. And um, you know, it just goes over the architecture, um, talks about um, how the video and the processor, you know, share access to the memory bus on the on the two phase uh, clock setup the 6502 uses. He pretty well completed the design or or uh, the the architecture of the design anyway by the time that article was written. Yeah, the the article was published in May of '77, which I think was when they right around when they introduced it. So uh, I would think that 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 the design would have been set by then. And it looks like this was published right on Byte's own website. So I think this is a an official scan from their archives. It is, yeah. Excellent. Yay for not pirating. <laughs> Another blast of the past recently came up when it was realized that this year marks the 25th anniversary of the product HyperCard. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ars Technica published a nice article over there. They don't really talk about the Apple IIGS implementation of, in fact, that they don't talk about it at all, uh, the Apple IIGS implementation of HyperCard, but it gives a nice history of the product uh, and its development and how it was used sort of in a way that would parallel the way the modern Internet works as far as hyperlinks and, and media and that sort of thing. A hypercard, that predates Hyper Studio, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, because Hyper Studio, I think, came out 23 years ago in 1989 for the 2GS solely. Hypercard, was that originally a Mac product that then made its way back to the Apple II? I think so. I see. I've seen a lot of Hackfest entries at Kansas Fest that were written in Hypercard. Unfortunately, I haven't seen much else done with it, although I know Kim Howe wrote a couple of games for it, which I haven't gotten around to trying. Do either of you have much experience with HyperCard as either a stack developer or as just a user? I don't. I know that uh, I know that HyperCard um, was designed to help people who aren't necessarily great programmers or know that much about coding um, get get code out and get programs out there in a hurry um, and easily. So, uh, but I haven't used it myself. Yeah, I haven't used it either. Uh, I'm really not that familiar with it. Um. Rich, are you more of an 8-bit or a 16-bit guy? Certainly, yeah, 8-bit, I guess, would be the case. Um, I, you know, there was the, I, I used my Apple II. I, I had an Apple II Plus, uh, if I didn't mention that specifically. And I ended up using that computer from around 1980 when we got it to 1988 um, when I graduated from college. So I, for some reason, I never really had the desire to buy newer Apple IIs. I don't know why, Um I just kept using the same one I had. Of course, I upgraded it in every way possible. And um, then um, after after college, I ended up switching to the PC and becoming a PC weenie and um, never owned a Mac until probably three or four years ago. He's an 8-bit guy living in a 16-bit world. <laughs> That's right. We should make a music video about that. <laughs> yeah. But 
Actually, I recall, meme. I recall the, the going to a store here in, in Wausau, where I live, um, called Team Electronics, and they were kind of a stereo store that took on buying, uh, selling computers, uh, microcomputers, and it was one of Apple's early um, distributors. And all excited for the demo of the Mac, um, sat down at the Mac, uh, let the salesperson go through his spiel on all the things the Mac could do, and at the end of his, I don't know, 10 or 15 minute little demo, I asked, well, where, where's the command line? You know, where, where, where's basic? You know, all these things. Cause I was an Apple II user and I wanted to, you know, do the same things I was doing on Apple II. I certainly wasn't a visionary. I didn't look at the mouse and swoon. Um, I, uh, I just wanted my, you know, my, my environment that I was used to. And of course, none of those things existed on the Mac. Uh, certainly not, uh, during the first, during the rollout. Um, I think basic was six months to a year later. Um, they finally brought that out. So it was a real paradigm shift and I didn't shift very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was around 84. Um, I kept my Apple II to 88 and, and, uh, then I think I bought a PC at some point after, after getting out of college. So you eventually did switch to the dark side. I did. Yes. I'm, uh, I guess being an engineer, it was one of those things where even if I had tried to buck the system, I think I would have ended up owning a PC no matter what. Um, there's just too many engineering based programs that require a PC. But you eventually came back. I did. Yeah. I did actually. I've got an iMac, um, sitting here, um, on my desk next to my PC. Wonderful. So while HyperCard is turning 25, some reports indicate that Atari, which is the first employer of Mr. Steve Jobs, is turning 40, but some people are saying, no, it doesn't. The Atari name has been around for 40 years. Uh, the company that was founded by Nolan Bushnell in 1972 called Atari stopped existing a long time ago. Um, so I guess maybe this is, you know, we could celebrate the 40th anniversary of that company that went that, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I, I see a lot of this, hey, congratulations, Atari, you're turning 40. No, they're not. So that's that's where I fall uh, on that spectrum. You know, there was a similar debate on ComputerWorld.com when we ran a story about Alan Turing turning 100. Even though he died many years ago, we said that, you know, this past week, Alan Turing would have turned 100. And one of our readers commented, you don't have to be alive to turn 100. My house just turned 29. It's not alive. I mean, Alan Turing turned 100, whether or not he's alive. And I said, well, the thing that made Alan Turing Alan Turing no longer exists. So he can't turn 100. So you're making the case that Atari doesn't exist, but we can still acknowledge it's the 40th anniversary of its founding. Right. I think it's important to, to mark the day and, and kind of remember Atari as it was when it was a great video game company, but to, to say that this is its birthday or, or that the Atari of, of 2012 in any way resembles the Atari of 19, of the, of the 70s and 80s, um, I think that's ridiculous. Right, because it's been bought out and split off so many times, and now right. a French publishing company called Infograms bought it and adopted it as their own name, and now they make mobile games. Right, it was just a uh, it, it, for a long time it was just a, a brand um, that that belonged to another company, and then they renamed themselves Atari. So, but they are still sometimes using those intellectual properties. For example, last year on Xbox there was a new version of the game Haunted House, which was originally an Atari Twenty Six Hundred game. 
Right. And as, as part of the celebration, uh, this is, this part's actually kind of cool. The, the Atari that exists today, uh, if you had an iPad, if you have an iPad or an iPhone, um, on their 40th birthday, they released a bunch of their classic games, uh, for free. Are they still free? Uh, I think it was just for the day. I, I haven't oh. checked, but, um, you, you can go to the app store and check it. Great. Thanks. Sure. Rich, were you an Atari kid? Uh, no, no, I sure wasn't. <laughs> were you were you a gamer at all? Oh yeah, I mean, I uh, games games are played on the Apple II. So you're more a choplifter and load runner kind of guy. Exactly, that's right. Gotcha. That reminds me, actually. So you, I, there was a comment in one of your previous shows about um, having a, a robot war programming contest. Did that ever come together? Do you guys recall a thread about that? That was, I think, that was Jimmy Mayer, Jimmy Marr. Um, the blog, the Apple II blogger, he was trying to put together a Robot War tournament, and I think he didn't get enough uh, interest, and so he kind of tabled the idea for now. Sure, yeah, that was a, that was a huge game, and uh, uh, with my friends, and um, that was a game I really enjoyed. Did you sign up for his tournament? I, you know, I didn't. I think I found out about it um, too late. Mm. Well, maybe he needs to try again with better publicity. On a completely different note, I was uh, shopping around um, on the the web for some hardware for the Apple III the other day, and I stumbled across this website called Classic Computer Shop. Um, it's it's actually located, I think, in Norway. It's in Europe, um, and they they sell they exclusively sell um, vintage computer hardware. They cover Apple and TI and Atari and Commodore and some other stuff. Um, and the reason I bring this up is that I've seen a lot of complaints from uh, European Apple II users um, about how it's how they can't always buy uh, eBay Apple II items because the shipper won't ship to them or it's prohibitively expensive or anything like that. And I just wanted to mention this as a place where if you're in Europe and you want to buy some of this equipment, they do have a nice selection, and obviously they'll, they'll ship to you for a lot less than you could get it from the United States for um, the prices there are not are not great or anything, but they're comparable, I guess, to what you see on eBay today. So um, um, if you're there and you want to buy hardware, it's worth checking out. I think. And it's worth reiterating that this is not an auction house; it's an actual store. It's just a straight out transaction. You go online, you buy it, bam, you're done. Right, exactly. And I, I actually was able to buy. If you're here in the states, uh, they'll they'll happily ship. Uh, to you as well. I was uh, able to buy a, a joystick from them, and they shipped it over, and it arrived in good condition. A joystick that you couldn't find stateside? Uh, it was an Apple III joystick. It was called the Cursor III. It was made specifically for the Apple III, um, and I haven't, I to date, I haven't seen another one for sale anywhere. So I felt rather fortunate that I was able to grab that one. And there were some Apple III games you just had to play. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'll think of one eventually, or write one. <laughs> Maybe so. That would be a great entry to this year's Retro Challenge 2012. That's right, Ken. The, the Retro Challenge tw- uh, 2012 Summer Challenge is opened. So if you're like me and you either signed up for the one earlier this year, the warm-up, or, or you, and dropped out or you didn't sign up at all, now's your chance. Yeah, this is similar to the HackFest at Kansas Fest, except unlike at HackFest where you need to be on-site and you have one week to produce your program specifically for the Apple II, the Retro Challenge lets you be anywhere, have several weeks to work on your project, and it can be any sort of retro computing activity. I think previous winners include the Apple Game Server. Was that the name of it? Yeah, um, Egan Forge Project. Right. 
So there have been some notable projects to come out of this. Yeah, it looks like it's a lot of fun. I think it goes on for 30 days. Rich, are you much of a programmer for hardware that isn't something you developed? Um, probably not not too much. Um, um, certainly not uh, not professionally. So most of the work I do is I am a, actually a firmware engineer um, uh, for my day job, and but of course that's all stuff that um, you know it's all embedded and not something you see. So you're not working with six five zero two machine language during the day. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> what sort of languages are you working in? Um, mainly C, um, and it's on uh, you know eight bit and thirty two bit microcontrollers primarily, and small controllers, but not sixteen bit. Uh, typically not. No, I guess you could call the AVR, which is on the CFFA uh, now. You could call it a sixteen bit machine. I, that that might be stretching it a little bit though. It's sort of it's eight bit, you know, plus kind of. It's got some sixteen bit registers and and uh, but it's I think it's truly an eight bit machine. I think the Neo Geo arcade machine was considered a 24-bit arcade machine because it had like a 16-bit graphics processor and 8-bit audio processor, so they just combined them and called Mm -hmm. it 24. But as far as I know, that's not really how math works. (laughs) Uh. But it's good for sales. Oh, of course. Same thing with the Atari Jaguar. I think that was 32 bits each audio and visual, so they call it 64-bit. Right. Sure. And that's why that company doesn't exist, except in name only. <laughs> A-I-N-O, Atari in name only. <laughs> sure. It's like Polaroid, right? So there, there was a meme, I think, a little a, a while back where if you if you disagreed with something or you didn't like the way a, a movie was, you, you called it, you know, Atari, in, something in name only. So I am Ken Gagne in name only? <laughs> yes, exactly. You're not actually Ken oh, Gagne. Then who is? Please don't tell me it's Carrington. I can't stand that guy. It is. I'm sorry. All right. I'm going to have to wrestle him for it this summer. I need that name back. Ooh, we got a video of that. <laughs> Just like when I arm wrestled Jerry Ellsworth. Right. Yeah, because that was a winning proposition for me. <laughs> anyway. You brought it up. <laughs> and it keeps coming up. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think the, I think the original in-name only was uh, Tino Transformers in-name only. It started with that, that first Transformers movie. Ah. Uh... I hear Michael Bay is going to be rebooting his own movie series. No. <laughs> Con. <laughs> All right. Bay. You know, we haven't actually talked about the fact that Kansas Fest is only like two weeks away. I know. It's crazy. And we still haven't figured out what movie we're going to see at Kansas Fest. No. I mean, that's really important. We could see Spider-Man. We could see Batman. We could see... Well, you guys better figure it out, because if you don't, we're going to have to call the whole thing off. <laughs> That's right. Just cancel Kansas Fest. My vote's for Abe Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. No. He's no Buffy, but he'll do. <sighs> uh, but yeah, Kansas Fest is coming up, and uh, we talked about that a little bit more in the intro, but you won't be joining us this year, Rich? No, sorry to say I won't be making it. Um, too many, not enough vacation time and too many responsibilities. Too many CFFAs to ship. Uh, exactly. Well, I hope KFest 2011 won't be your only time at the event. Um, yeah, I don't know, not sure what the future holds, but, uh, I really did enjoy myself, um, uh, last year. I will say that it, it is kind of a complete blur, right? It, 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 even though, I guess I was there, what, three, three or four days and it, um, it, it's, it is, it's a total blur. <laughs> it's just, it went well, so fast. Didn't you spend most of the time in your room constructing those boards? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, taking orders and 
trying to fill orders and stuff like that. So um, maybe next time I won't come with anything uh, interesting to uh, to sell or anything, and just just kind of kick back and enjoy. I would I would like that. So what you're saying is that you can either be a productive member of the Apple II community, or you can enjoy Kansas Fest. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's but not both. That's, cer- not both. that's certainly that's been right. my experience. <laughs> well, that's true. You do a lot of work. You're- Running around quite a bit there, I noticed. I, st- I still have a few videos to upload, and we have some fascinating ideas of videos we can shoot this year. So yeah, there will be. Uh, I-, I have my homework assignments. So now the 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 the, uh, the headliner there at KFest is that um, uh, someone from ID, Mr. Romero himself. That's correct, John Romero, creator of Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, and Quake, and also his co-founder, not John Carmack, but Lane Roth. Or it could be Lane Rath. I apologize. I know I screwed it up when I introduced him as our keynote speaker a few years ago, and I have not rid myself of that shame yet. <laughs> but he'll actually be coming as an attendee. Very. Well, so he'll be he'll be reunited with his former coworker. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't mind uh, uh, meeting those folks. I played a lot of Doom and Quake and you know Wolfenstein 3D and all that stuff. I mean, that was back when I was still heavy into into games and. Um, in fact, it was probably after Quake that I my gaming adventures started to come to an end. So all the fun, cheerful stuff like Super Mario Brothers and Legend of Zelda where you go around rescuing princesses, that's not your bag. But put a BFG in your hands and, oh, you get busy. <laughs> that's right. I that's see what right. kind of gamer you are. Yeah. I mean, we were doing, I guess, what they call LAN parties, you know, five to ten years before they were called LAN parties. Oh, those were good uh, times. Yeah, they sure were. <laughs> I'll be shooting video of Romero's keynote speech, but there is another video that you recently discovered, Mike, about the Rockafire. Ah, yes, the Rockafire explosion. Um, are either of you familiar with uh, Showbiz Pizza? Uh, you mean Showtime Pizza? No, I mean Showbiz Pizza. <laughs> well, whatever you call it, no, I'm not. <laughs> so was that like was it sort of like a Chuck E. Cheese kind of a deal? Well, exactly. Yeah, and, and in fact, when Ch- the original Chuck E. Cheese went out of business, uh, they, they went bankrupt. After having uh, been founded by the same guy who founded Atari 40 years ago. That's right. Uh, they went out of business, and Showbiz bought their assets and then renamed themselves uh, Chuck E. Cheese. But uh, originally, they were two competing franchises, and Chuck E. Cheese had the Chuck E. Cheese band, um, and Showbiz had their own... Um, animatronic band that, that sort of it, it looked and functioned like the, the one that Chuck E. Cheese's had and uh, the guy that programmed it um, he was actually contracted by Chuck E. by uh, Showbiz to to build and program these animatronic displays and his name is Aaron Fector um, I just just occurred to me what that actually sounds like. It sounds like a supervillain's name, the Air Infector. Is that a supervillain? It might be. I don't know. If it's not, it shouldn't. If, if if it's not, it should be, and somebody should call Stanley immediately. It sounds like somebody who would fight Captain Planet. That's right, Air Infector. But uh, Air Infector um, programmed the Rockafire Explosion. That was the name of the band with an Apple IIe, and this is the the. In 2008, a documentary was produced, um, and you can buy that DVD now. And it's interesting to see him talk about the um, how he how he goes and how he programs it, and put the whole thing together. And eventually, when when Showbiz bought Chuck E. Cheese and switched over, they ended their contract with him. Um, and so he started his own business where he continued to manufacture and sell 
these uh, animatronic displays, and I guess he would sell the Apple IIe as, uh, with it as a way for you to program it yourself. So I thought that was kind of cool. And you can check out that DVD um, by it. I think it's less than, it's right around 20 bucks. Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. I recently saw that pizza chain mentioned on another online website, and I'd never heard of them until you mentioned it to me. So I don't know if they're suddenly some sort of a showbiz pizza time renaissance occurring or what? Hmm. I don't know. I haven't, I hadn't heard about them in a long time. I, I know that uh, showbiz was one of my favorite places to go as a kid because they had a, a video arcade where you could go and play games um, as well as, you know, obviously eat pizza and, and party with your friends. But I went for the video games. So did, it, did showbiz buy the, all the buildings too and all the Chuck E. Cheese franchises? They did. They bought yeah, the whole they, thing. They, okay. Yeah, they they bought the whole thing and 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 then renamed themselves Chuck E. Cheese and and I I'm sure that they did that so that they wouldn't have to rebrand all the buildings and the napkins and the plates and everything else. Yeah, we didn't have a Chuck E. Cheese around here. I don't think when I was when I was younger, um, and so the only time I was at Chuck E. Cheese was when I'd go visit my my cousin in California, and that was the nearest video arcade. So we'd go. We'd go over there and spend hours playing video games at Chuck E. Cheese. I didn't have that experience as a child, but as a teenager, that's I've been to it a few times. Sure. I've never actually been inside a Chuck E. Cheese before. Hmm. But it, I do have fond memories of going to pizza places more for the games than the food. In fact, it was a Papa Gino's in Laconia, New Hampshire, where I very first encountered Super Mario Brothers. Now, that was my first exposure to that Nintendo mascot, which obviously defined the rest of my life. Sure. Of course. Yeah, as I recall, the, the food in those places wasn't wasn't really the best. I mean, you didn't go to actually eat the pizza. It was for the atmosphere and the games. Right, and a little kid probably can't afford a $6 pizza, but can, he can afford $0.25 cents to drop into a machine. Or his parents could anyway. Right. A couple of quick updates about some other games that we've mentioned before or for the first time, such as Surf Shooter. This is a game that recently came out from Brian Peachy, who is a former guest of the Open Apple podcast. And when he was on the show, we talked at length about his game reviews that he produces for YouTube. We did not actually mention until a later episode that he had written some games like Dogfighter of Mars. And he just came out with a new one called Surf Shooter, which reminds me actually a little bit of Combat for the Atari 2600. This is a game that he wrote as part of a competition, not the retro challenge that we already mentioned, but... Another competition called Retrospectiva, and uh, it's some sort of an 8-bit programming competition. There are more details on the uh, English version of the website for this competition. Link will be in the show notes. And like all his games, it can be downloaded for free. Yeah. Cool. Brian, is it Peachy? How did how did you? That's how I say it. Yeah. Um, so he did a really nice review of the CFA 3000 on uh, on YouTube. And um, that's how I stumbled across um, his uh, the surf shooter video uh, that you mentioned earlier. And um, he had mentioned that uh, the GSOS doesn't or boots slower on the CFA 3000 than it does on I think it was the MicroDrive or some other I guess you call it competing uh, interface card. And um, so I'm going to be shipping. Um, a very, very minor update to the firmware on this batch, starting out on this batch of CFA 3000. And then uh, we'll be following up here probably in, I don't know, a month or so um, with version 3.1 of the firmware, which should fix that 
um, we're going to do a bunch of speed improvements to uh, s- uh, speed up the card. Not DMA uh, speed improvements, but just uh, the software speed improvements, and um, it should the the CFA should no longer be slower than the microdrive on GSOS. So, so, so you wrote these you wrote these firmware updates specifically to beat the microdrive. Um. It was something that was kind of on the list um, to do anyway, and the fact that uh, Brian had pointed it out was, you know, it just sort of, you know, stuck in my craw a little bit. So I was like, yeah, we, we need to do that. So I see. most of that work, is, most of those optimizations are being done by Dave uh, Lyons. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, we'll probably end up switching firmware revs, you know, halfway through this batch somewhere. And um, But the upgrade process is very, very straightforward and very simple. So we'll make that available to everyone. Um, and that will also apply to the version to the run one board since they are identical really to the run two boards. Um, so it'll also bring um, to bear let's see it'll it's it'll add uh, directory support so that you can have subdirectories in your you know archive of, of disk images, um, which is really handy for management right especially if you're downloading a lot of stuff off the internet. Um, so is it that and a few other minor improvements and uh, should be a good a good update. I guess there's something to be said for competition. Yeah, I think so. I mean it um it uh it, one of the things I think that we didn't do was there was there was some low hanging fruit in terms of optimizations. So we just hadn't sure. had time to go through and and uh and take advantage of some of that. And so now now we've kind of gone back and done that. Um we've um, the card has a 128k of RAM on it that that we weren't using for, um, it has 120 K of Ram that we weren't, uh, there was still a lot of space left. So we've implemented a, uh, a, a disc caching, uh, algorithm that will help speed up things significantly. So, and even though I've, even though I've never owned an R and D automation device, although I should, I've read and published enough stories about your products to know that this is one of the great things about them is that they are always being looked at for ways to be improved. It's not like the iDisc that Mike has. That company pretty much shipped a batch of cards and then we never heard from them again. Right, Mike? Yeah, that's correct. I think in their case, um, the the changing economy made it a lot more expensive to manufacture the cards. Um, They had also promised that there would be firmware updates and things that you could apply on your own, and they never followed through on any of that. The site's been kind of static, I think, since about the middle of 2010. Right, whereas the CFFA is the card you buy might not be the card you end up with. What you end up with will probably be significantly better. Um, yeah, we've certainly tried to you know keep keep development going and keep it improving it. Um, now the iDisc was that um, was that a card out of Asia somewhere? Uh, yeah, it was a Korean card. Yeah, and it looked. I can remember when I first saw that oh. card. I thought, oh, geez, you know, I guess I missed the boat, right? And didn't didn't. Uh, <laughs> Because that was during the sort of development phase of the of, of my card, and um, I seem to recall that that one there was a sort of a convoluted series of steps you had to go through to actually commit the rights back to back to the media, um, sort of a manual step. Did they ever resolve that so that writing was a uh, was automatic? No, I, I think that that was you know may have been something that they wanted to do in their their firmware updates that never happened. Um, it, yeah, you're right. It was, it was difficult to, to get it to do anything. I mean, it worked and it, it you know, it, it did what it said, but it, it required some effort on the end of the end user. 
I see. Well, it is easy to fall into the trap where when you're making a card that's sort of a labor of love and you want to sell it and you want, you know, you, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it's just me, but you tend to underprice the card, right? So, and you, you know, you end up, you end up not making a lot of profit. And then if something changes where the, the part availability or the price of the parts goes up, you, you can really get yourself into a, into a jam. And, um, so you've, you've got to price the card high enough. And this is a problem I've gotten myself into, right? I don't price the card high enough above, you know, what it costs me. Um, luckily, if you, as I keep making it, I can sometimes recover from some of those mistakes, you know, by, by doing a bigger batch or just beating up on the, on the, on the suppliers a little bit more and sort of just saying, Hey, I want, I want a better price. And sure. you'd be surprised how well that actually works. Especially if you've got a relationship with a, you know, with someone on the phone. The the one neat thing that the iDesk had that I haven't seen yet anywhere else is uh, it had the Bluetooth capability. You could, you could send files to and from your Mac or PC through Bluetooth. Um, and that worked really well, actually. Hmm. In, and so did did you use that feature? Did you find that? I did. Yeah, you could you could load up your load up the whole um, the USB drive you plugged in uh, directly through Bluetooth. You didn't have to to open your case up or or you didn't have to string out the uh, the USB connector to unplug it and then move it over your PC and load it and go back and forth that way. That was one. It was very uh, convenient. Huh. That's interesting. I um I haven't thought much about it, but I guess in theory. Um, you know, we could do something where you plug in uh, a Bluetooth dongle into the, you know, into the, a future CFFA, and and then mount, you know, uh, mount uh, some media via, you know, if if there's enough room in the in the, it's just software, right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so it could be done um, theoretically. Cool. I, I don't know if there'd be demand for that or not. I don't know. There was some discussion that Vince Briel's A2 MP3 card might beat yours to the punch, Rich, and with its USB interface, that might become the de facto USB interface for the Apple II. But as far as I know, so far it's remained limited to just plain MP3s. I don't know if maybe that'll change and it'll give you a run for your money. Um, yeah, I haven't talked too much uh, with Vince about that. Um, um, I know he's working on um, a couple of new projects and he's always got one iron in the fire or another. Um, so I, I don't have, uh, I should ask him about that, how that's been going. Our monthly Kickstarter update, the battle chess reboot that we expected would fail did fail. They raised about $15,000 out of a minimum hundred thousand needed. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed battle chess quite a bit, partly because it was one of the few games that had modem play on the Apple two. So you could play it, Without going to a land party like Rich sure. used to, it's, it's kind of it's interesting though. I think this is actually sort of a and maybe an important lesson if you want to call it that. That because all we we keep hearing about the success of Kickstarter projects and how well everybody gets all this money to do whatever project they want. It's it's a good reminder that just because you put something on Kickstarter doesn't mean you're going to get what you need to do what you want. It can be deceiving because ever since Tim Schafer succeeded. With his Double Fine Adventure back in February, there have been a lot of games on Kickstarter, and there's been a lot of money going into Kickstarter specifically for games, so people think that they can ride that wave, but you still need to have a good project that appeals to a large audience, and Battle Chess didn't do that. They were going to release the game for Windows only, and the fact is nowadays that a lot of gaming occurs on other platforms, not just Mac and Linux, and not even just 
game consoles like Xbox and PS3, but also mobile like iOS and Android, and they were ignoring all those segments. Right. I think iOS has become a huge game platform over the past few years. Some would say that Apple is now Nintendo's biggest competitor. Makes sense. So how does uh, what happens on a Kickstarter when you know some when it fails? Right. So do does everybody get their money back? Is it just uh, do you guys know? Well, the money isn't charged to begin with. It's a pledge. But what you're basically saying is that if you get enough pledges to meet your minimum, which in this case was hundred thousand dollars, then we'll give you the money. I see. In this case, since the minimum wasn't met, nobody was charged in the first place, so no charges went through and no refunds were needed. Hmm. And, and what what are they usually? So they pledge something. What did they get in return other than just you know the chance to buy the product? In cases of software, it's very often a pre-order, as you mentioned, but there can be other rewards. The lowest minimum for the Battle Chess Kickstarter was 5 bucks, and you get a nice desktop wallpaper image. The highest amount you could get a reward for was $1,000, which includes all the previous rewards, plus an invitation to the launch party at Buena Park, California, with the development team. Uh, you can also get your name in the credits, a T-shirt, a boxed copy of the game. Uh, think some other games might let you appear as a character in the game. Items like that. So you you get different pri- uh, different gifts, I guess, or or rewards depending on the level of your pledge. Right, and it, to a degree, it's optional. For example, with ki- with the Battle Chess Kickstarter, the first two rewards are five bucks. You get the wallpaper. Fifteen bucks. You get the downloadable copy. You can choose to pledge $15 and then it asks you which reward do you want up to $15. And you can say, I want just the wallpaper because you might find that more interesting. Or you can say, I want nothing. And even though 5 and 15 bucks are the two minimums for rewards, you can pledge $10 and that makes you eligible for the $5 prize. So these are just tiers, but it's not a restriction. So this is like the modern day version of those old PBS pledge drives that you used to have? Exactly. Okay. I mean, they call it crowdfunding, but crowdfunding is basically what nonprofits have been doing for decades. You know, like the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, they ask a million people for $5 each to find a cure for MS rather than going to just one venture capitalist and ask, hey, can you, one person, give me $5 million? I just remember how much those old PBS drives used to annoy me because they would interrupt the Doctor Who marathons on Saturday (laughs) to beg for money. Oh, well, that's unforgivable. Exactly. There's no way I'm giving you money. I'm trying to watch this show. Come on. Well, in that case, the reward they should have offered was that they'll stop the telethon and let you watch Doctor Who. Oh, I see. So, in other words, they're blackmailing me? (laughs) Yes. Right. (laughs) Extorting the money. (laughs) You give me the money, and I'll go away. It's simple. I've heard of people who are trying to raise money for nonprofits, and they'll throw like an undinner party. They'll send invitations out saying, look, everybody hates getting dressed up and eating these little hors d'oeuvres that you never eat anywhere else and mingling with people you don't know and don't want to spend time with. So send us $125 for your ticket, and we'll not throw the party so you don't have to come. (laughs) Yeah, And I've actually heard of those sometimes being more successful. Probably so, yeah. Anyway, aside from Brian Fargo, the two guys from Andromeda were also in the news. They're the guys behind Space Venture on Kickstarter, or otherwise known as Space Quest. They invented the Space Quest franchise back in the 80s, and then they split up. One worked on one sequel, another worked on another sequel, and most people felt that each game was missing something. And I guess they parted on not-so-swell terms. Well, 20 years later... They reunited for this Kickstarter, and this Gamasutra article talks about their relationship, not so much about the games that they developed, but how they're how they worked to get together to make those games, what it was like working apart, and what 
ultimately led them to reconcile their differences and make this new game. And I, I liked that humanistic approach to look at the people behind the software. Nice. Another Kickstarter that was successful quite some time ago was The Wasteland 2 by Brian Fargo, formerly of Interplay, now of In Exile Entertainment. And he gave a nice interview in Game Informer, which is one of, I think, the largest printed gaming magazine in the States. What was most interesting about this interview he gave in the July 2012 issue was that it focused solely on the Apple II version of Wasteland, not on the modern sequel that he's now working on. Hmm. Game Informer is a magazine aimed at modern gamers, so for them to have that retro focus was surprising. I expected to find that more in the retro magazine that I think the UK prints. There was a continuation to the interview on the Game Informer website, which does focus more on Wasteland 2. I just would have thought it would have been the other way around. They'd focus on what's new and upcoming in the print mag and then add any cutting floor material to the website, but they went the other way for some reason. So if anybody wants to take a look at what made the Apple II version of Wasteland so successful and memorable that it warrants a reboot, pick up your local Game Informer magazine. Did he say anything interesting? No. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Well, let me put it this way. He didn't say anything surprising. Ah, okay. Uh, Nothing we didn't know before about the original Wasteland development. If you've played Wasteland or listened to Carrington's review on 1 megahertz, you got the gist of what Fargo had to say. Gotcha. A while back, we asked if the ActiveGS iOS app, which is an Apple IIGS emulator from FTA, looked better on the iPad 3 and its Retina display. Wayne Arthurton, an Open Apple listener, wrote in, and he said, "As far as I could tell, it was the as far as I could tell, the app was not updated to specifically take advantage of the iPad 3 Retina screen. That being said, there was a definite subjective." improvement hmm. in the smoothness of the emulation. And he does acknowledge that that's an oxymoron. Uh, also, also, the FTA app was briefly removed from the iOS store, but not because of any restriction on emulation. Whatever reason it had for going down was detailed in the Apple II Enthusiast group on Facebook by its developer, and the app has now been reinstated to the store, so it is available again. Oh, good. And if you're looking for this program in the app store. It's actually called the best of FTA. ActiveGS won't pull up anything, I don't think. Ah, good catch. So what exactly is ActiveGS then? I think ActiveGS is the underlying emulation technology uh, that they're using because uh, I, I think that they also use Act ActiveGS is also a standalone emulator that you can uh, download and use on your Mac or your PC. It's, it's what lies behind the virtual Apple uh, web-based emulator as well. Rich, what is your emulator of choice, mobile or otherwise? Um, I do have the the uh, uh, the FTA um, app, and I was actually um, I did go through the procedure of you know just turning it into an emulator, not just a not just a game player, I guess. And um, otherwise, I've been using like for Apple II emulation. Um, I've been using I don't use it much actually, but it's a PC app. It's um, Apple Win. So the FTI has ActiveGS, Brutal Deluxe has Cadius. Any idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly? Um, sounds good to me. Great. C-A-D-I-U-S. It's a command line tool for Windows. So it's sort of like an early version of Profuse, which Kelvin Sherlock made. And that program, Profuse, allowed you read-only access to Apple II disk images. Cadius is full-featured. It's read and write support for 2MG, PO, and HDV disk images via the Windows command line. So it's a disk image utility. 
Yes. Okay. Now, Mike, you're more of a Windows guy than I am. Until this program came out, I didn't realize Windows had a command line. Are you joking? Or are you being serious? I'm actually, I mean, are you, are they, when they say command line, do they mean the MS-DOS prompt? Yes. Yes. Well, originally, uh, you know, when, when way back in the dark ages of Windows, Windows 3.1 and 95, 98, and, uh, Windows was actually a shell for DOS. And then with XP and these, the newer versions, um, they've continued to include what they call the command line. Um, but it's, it's a set of, uh, command line DOS tools, basically. I see. I knew that early Windows was was a shell, and I briefly did own a PC back when MS-DOS was the current operating system, but I've just never heard a reference to a Windows command line using that terminology. Mm, yeah. Okay. And I certainly don't hear people talking about the power and versatility of the Windows command line like they do the Mac OS X command line. Well, I think the Mac OS X command line is actually, I mean, when you're in that, you are in uh, BSD. Whereas this is this is sort of a with Windows, what you've got is a small set of of DOS type utilities that you can use uh, for file manipulation. If if you want to do sort of the real powerful stuff in Windows, they want you to use what's called the Windows scripting host, which is a script language that allows you to do a lot of the same functions but faster and easier, um, more akin to I think Windows has a script language, AppleScript. Uh, it's more akin to to AppleScript, and that's how. Um, Microsoft wants you to do that sort of thing. The, the DOS, the, the command line tools are, are useful, but they're not very powerful. So that might explain why I'm not familiar with them by that name, because I'm not missing much. Yes. Cool. I would say that's, that's accurate. Yay, I'm not ignorant. Well, in the meantime, there are plenty of other new products coming out for the Apple II. Besides from Brutal Deluxe, we also have a new book from David Finnegan, who we had on the show just recently. So no need to go into too much detail about the book called the new Apple II User's Guide. It is nearly 800 pages detailing everything about how to get an Apple II and what to do with it once you have it, from software to hardware, including new products like those we've been mentioning on this show. I know it will be available at Kansas Fest for the low, low price of $18, include shipping and handling, or you can get it online at Amazon.com for, I think, 25 plus shipping. And A2Central.com will have a full review, hopefully by the end of the week. And may I ask who's providing that? That'd be me, Ken. Excellent. Yep, David sent me a pre-release copy, and I've been going through it, and it's some great stuff, and uh, I've been slowly putting together a nice review. Great. Well, without even knowing that you were doing that, I asked somebody else to review it for JuiceGF, so there. Of course, you have the advantage of working in an online medium, so your review will get published while it's timely, whereas JuiceGF's will not. Take that, Ken. Eh, it's the medium of print. I, li- I live within it, and I will die within it. <laughs> so, so how does uh, how do you think uh, uh, Dave Finnegan approached a publisher and said, "Hey, I'm going to write this great new book about the Apple II world." You know, what do you think? I think he is using the Amazon service called Create Space, which is basically a self-publishing tool. Yeah, this is a self-published title. Ah, okay. It's still profitable for him, but it's not something where. He signed a contract and then had a marketing and copy editing team going over it and then marketing it to bookstores. In fact, Barnes & Noble lists this book in their online store, but Dave Finnegan is warning people that they have no means to actually procure the book at this time. That may change in the future, but pre-orders placed with Barnes & Noble will not be fulfilled. So he's encouraging people to cancel their order from Barnes & Noble and either get it at Amazon or through MacGooey.com, which is David's website, or go to Kansas Fest. 
Well, that's pretty cool. I have to say, I, I was uh, looking at the, there isn't much information in terms of, you can't look inside the book on Amazon yet, but um, I, I was pretty impressed that someone came out with an Apple II book at this late date. Yeah. And if Steve Weirich has anything to say about it, it won't be the last one. Yeah, his history book's coming soon, isn't it? I don't have any concrete details. Most of what he blogs about on his site regards the content of the book. I don't know that he is any closer to it being published as far as finding a publisher or a self-publishing service that he'll be using. I know he's definitely investigating those possibilities. Definitely won't have anything, well, I can't say definitely because I'm not him, but it sounds like he'll have nothing to announce at Kansas Fest, but I'm optimistic that within the next year we may have something in our hands. Even if we don't have a book from Dr. Steve in the next year or so, we will have, there, there is another, uh, Apple title that's being republished. Um, What's Where in the Apple is a very popular series of books, uh, produced by Robert Tripp, uh, under the Micro Ink label back in the 80s. And he announced, um, I guess about a month ago that they are going to be publishing an ebook version of that. Um, you can go to, uh, his website now and read up on, uh, the, Project Progress, and we'll have an interview with him a little bit later in the show where he'll talk more about it, but uh, it's coming, it's coming soon, and uh, it looks like it's going to be a neat title. Now, when it says what's where in the Apple II, does it mean that literally where he's dissecting the hardware? Uh, it's not It's not the hardware. He t- it's more uh, the, the, the software and programming locations and, and addressing and um, exactly how the Apple um, deals with code at, at a, a very low level. I see. Yeah, it's not a hardware book at all. So all stuff that will make me feel stupid. Uh, well, it certainly made me feel stupid. Yeah. Of course, you know that's a pretty wide net I'm casting. Sure. And it's and he said that this is going to be more than just a, a, a PDF scan. Um, there, I guess there are some some tables and um, other items that appeared in the original book that don't translate well to PDF, and so they're redoing those as interactive sections of the ebook. So I'm really looking forward to what he has available. And actually, if you go there now, you can pre-order the book and get a get a, a discount. Nice. Yeah. So Dave Finnegan's book will be at KFest. The What's Where book is coming out after KFest, and somehow, as a result of a discussion on the KFest email list, Duan Wenup has created a new product called the Sweet 16 Starter Kit. The Sweet 16 Starter Kit is a disk image of about only 34 megabytes unzipped. It's about 4 megabytes when it is zipped. And it comes with the usual beautiful PDF documentation that Human is known for. And this is basically everything you need to get up and running with an Apple IIGS emulator. I, I, I just double-clicked his disk image on my Mac OS X, and since I already have Sweet 16 installed, it immediately booted into GSOS, and it has a bunch of useful uh, utilities, NDAs, and CDAs pre-installed. What you need to do is install Sweet 16, which you can get from Sheppy's website, and then provide the ROM from your legally purchased Apple IIGS, and this disk image is everything you need to then throw at that emulator and be up and running in GSOS. Now, do you know if this this only works with Sweet 16, or um, could I take this over to my Windows PC and use Kegs 32? That is an excellent question, and I don't think that Ewan addresses it, but I can't imagine that this disk image would be incompatible with another emulator. Certainly the documentation is written for Sweet 16, and he won't provide sure, you instructions yeah. on how to set up any other emulator. Well, uh, no, but I, I figure if you're using something like Kegs, you probably know how to set it up. So I would hope so. 
Ewan had previously done a Burning to the Rescue emulator starter kit, and he says in documentation that it gave users a ready-made bootable disk image which bypassed the chicken and the egg problem of getting a working system 6.0.1 onto a blank disk that could boot in the emulator. Because that is true. A lot of Apple II disk images are made to be accessed within an Apple II, but you need to use the disk image to get access to an Apple II environment. Oh, I wonder if this would work with the uh, um, best of FTA emulator on the iOS. That would just be a match made in heaven. I think so. I'll have to play with that after I, the show. I, I, I do wonder, though, how Ewan is distributing the system software. Historically, you needed to have a license from Apple to distribute that, and that was usually made available to user groups. I had one for my dial-up BBS, and I know Syndicom had one and does still have one, so you can download the disk images for free from Syndicom unless you need an actual physical disk, in which case they'll sell it to you. I don't know that Ewan has that license, and if he doesn't, I sincerely doubt Apple cares and I also doubt that any harm is coming from this product being made available. It's more of an academic issue than anything, but yeah, I still want to tell or something. Right, because the <laughs> Apple II community and the military are the same thing. <laughs> they are to me. <laughs> I I don't want to know where you're going with that metaphor. We won't go any further. Yeah. Good thing we're not roommates. <laughs> Thank God. Anyway, let's hop over to the Internet Archive and see what they have for us. Yes, it, it wouldn't be an episode of the Open Apple Podcast if we didn't have our monthly Jason Scott update. Ding. So we talked about uh, GetLamp, I think, before here on this show a few times. And as Jason did with his BBS documentary, he has now posted all of the raw video that he recorded during the GetLamp uh, interview sessions up on the Internet Archive. So you can head over there and watch them. There are many, many hours uh, available. Um, so enjoy. It's nice that Jason makes that available, but really, if you want to have the narrative that he produces on his documentaries, you need to buy the finished product because half of the work he puts in these, these things is the editing. It's not just putting a camera at somebody, letting them talk, and then putting it online. Oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's, you watch some. A lot of it's very interesting, but a lot, a lot of it is. Uh, it becomes very clear why Jason didn't include it in the um, in the final product. Some of it's just really boring. Some of it there's technical issues. Um, but I mean, I, I think just as a as a historical artifact and as sort of you know an, an extended extra, you know, beyond what you get with the package, this is a cool thing uh, that you can check out. What I would recommend doing is watching the finished product, and then if there's a specific individual or segment who piques your interest, you can go online and get the uncut version. That's a very good idea. Rich, have you seen any of Jason's work? Uh, I don't think I have. So he he did the uh, the BBS documentary. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, BBS no, and Get Lamp. Shame to say, I haven't I haven't seen those. <clears throat> well, you have missed out, and you will probably get punched in the face by him. <laughs> The next yes. time you come to Kansas Fest. Could That's be. Right. He'll be waiting. Yep. Uh, that won't be this year, not because uh, he won't be there, but because you won't be there. Jason will be attending, and as far as I know, he is currently in research and production mode for three documentaries simultaneously, one of which the Apple II will be featured in. That's 6502. That is the name and the subject of the documentary, that being the CPU in the Apple II. And Jason Scott will be, I think, shooting or perhaps interviewing at Kansas Fest about that chip. Cool. Yeah. So you, too, can be a movie star and be in the IMDb and be connected not only to Kevin Bacon, but also <laughs> me. 
Six degrees of Ken Gagney. God help us. <laughs> Thanks. Speaking of my many credits, there's a new issue of Juice GS in the mail. It is the June 2012 issue. It's the 66th issue of the quarterly Apple II magazine known as the last remaining Apple II publication still in print and the longest running one. It features a cover story with an interview with Dan Muse, who is the editor-in-chief, or was, of Insider slash A+, published by IDG from 1986 to 1993, though not always under that name. And this is also one of the few issues to not feature anything by Mike McGinnis. You know, I think I've figured it out. I think this this podcast is, is just simply yet another exercise for, for you to inflate your already massive ego, isn't it? <laughs> it's only because everybody else in my life is deflating it. This this podcast brings balance to my life. <laughs> okay. But you, but you know why I like it when you don't have an article in Juice GS, Mike? No, Ken, why don't you tell me? Because every time you write an article for Juice GS... It's good enough to be the cover story. Well, whose fault is that? You. Me. All right, fine. I'll, you. I'll start I'll start churning out crap just like <laughs> I do on my blog. And it'll still be better than anything I can write. <sighs> Stop it. But when you don't write an article, then I get a shot at the cover. Well, I'm glad that I could step aside and let somebody else have a shot at, at uh, greatness. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was my turn after all. <laughs> I can't win an Academy Award every year, I guess. Old or new, it's still cool in Retro Views. So for this month's Retro Views, I am here with Bob Tripp. Um, and that may not be a name that's familiar to all of you out there in Apple II land, but actually he's probably had quite a bit of influence on your early days using the Apple II computers. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, um, Mr. Tripp, why don't you say hello? Hello, everybody out there. So let's start kind of at the beginning, and we'll sort of move kind of quickly through the early stuff, and then we'll get to the good stuff with your experience with the Apple. But uh, how did you get started in computers, Bob? I was at Cornell in 1960. That's 52 years ago, when Frank Rosenblatt had invented something called the Perceptron, which is the first computer capable of actually learning things. And I took a course on computer models and brain mechanisms as a psychologist, and that got me started. And I was at Duke for my graduate work, and the psych department had one of the original 10 Link, L-I-N-C, computers that Digital Equipment Corporation had made for National Institutes of Health, and I got to use that on my dissertation. And that got me really interested. On that machine, you actually had to program it in machine language with switches to put all the data in and things like that. So it was quite a thing. After I graduated, I got a, I liked the computers, so I started in 1969 as a professional programmer and I started my own company in 1976. On that, I was working with a Kim 1 initially. I had an Apple 1 we'll talk about later, an Apple 2, started the magazine Micro to have a place to advertise my own products. That took off like gangbusters and became a separate enterprise. And uh, one of the articles submitted in August of 1979 was by Dr. Uh, William F. Lubert. It was an eight-page article on what's wearing the apple. I was very impressed by it. And luckily, one of my 
uh, employees was going to Dartmouth at the time. He was able to catch up with Dr. Lubert, and we lobbied him to do the full book, which he did. And we'll get into the book later on. The magazine and things sort of collapsed in about 1984 when the PC came out. The manufacturers were doing a better job supporting their own equipment. Ziff Davis and McGraw-Hill got in the act and so on. So I went on to do other things. That's my early history. Okay, and there's a very specific reason that you mentioned what's where in the apple is in there. Yes. Um, when you have your own business, you have lots of uh, flat spaces, a lot of holes, and occasionally you have a mountain. And what's where in the apple turned out to be one of the very positive things in uh, my many enterprises. Uh, we published the, uh, the guide, well, actually the atlas and the gazetteer, if people know what that is. The atlas was about a 60-page spreadsheet of all the information uh, numerically organized. And the gazetteer was a 40-page spreadsheet with the important information about the Apple II in uh, alphabetic order. Those two came out in 1982, three years after the article, which gives you some idea how much work it took. And then the actual guide, 150 pages, on how to use the Atlas and the Gazetteer, took another two years before that was completed and published in 1984. The book sold 40,000 copies. It had been out of print since then. Uh, I did some Googling on the uh, on how we could buy one. I've seen them listed from anywhere from $51 to $1,500 on the Internet. Wow. So I thought maybe uh, if there's that much interest, it would be time to, as the publisher and the copyright owner, uh, to get off my butt and uh, make an ebook version. And that's what we're working on now. And we hope to have that out by the end of the summer. So so we'll actually be able to buy an electronic copy of What's Wearing the Apple again very soon. That's correct. It's mostly been, uh, well, it's been scanned. That was the easy part. But those of you who've looked at scanned copies know it leaves a lot to be desired. So we've actually taken the scanned work, gone through optical character recognition to get back to text, uh, selected better formats to look better on displays, uh, processed the atlas and gazetteer that were not really quite spreadsheets. They were tables, but not spreadsheets, and made them full spreadsheets. And everything is looking pretty good. The intent is to come out with a simple Adobe PDF file that anyone can use on virtually any computer uh, without concern, any tablet, whatever. We're hoping that there is a lot of honesty in Apple world and that we can sell the thing for 19.95 without having the uh, nasty digital rights management involved. Well, that would be a, a great thing, and, and I think that um, if I think when that comes out, the community, at least I hope, they will respond very positively. Um, I'm sure there will definitely be a lot of interest uh, from those of us who continue to use the Apple II today. Uh, now, have you have you decided on a release date for for the ebook? Well, we will definitely have it by September one. I'm hoping we'll have it much sooner, but we don't want to box ourselves in. Uh, we do have a website now that people can go to to get the latest updated information. Uh, the easy way to get there 
is www.ewwa.us. In other words, it's uh, the electronic what's where in the Apple and uh, the .us. Or if you're glutton for punishment, you can also do uh, what's where in the Apple.com. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have links, both of those links in the show notes as well. Um, okay, so that's that's great news, and uh, I'm I'm sure we'll definitely be looking forward to that. Now, you had mentioned a, a few minutes ago, I think that you actually had an Apple One at one point. Yes, that's sort of a a sad tale. Uh, when I started my company, and actually before I started my company, I think either in '75 or '76, I'd met Steve Jobs at some computer shows, liked what he had, and ordered an Apple One. Mine came, I hooked it up, couldn't get it to work. Had some engineer friends come in, they couldn't get it to work. So I finally ended up calling the, quote, factory. At that point, Steve Jobs answered the phone. We chatted for about five minutes and, you know, he tried me, try this, try that. Couldn't solve it. Put Steve Wozniak on the phone, we chatted another five minutes. He couldn't solve it. They said, send it back, we'll fix it. Something wrong with it. So I had probably the only one that failed out of the 200 they made. Wow. Unfortunately, while it was gone, I got interested in some other products. So when it finally came back, I sold it to somebody. And those of you who kept up with things know that an Apple One just sold for $370,000. Yep. And another one sold on eBay for, uh, I think, $78,000. So... <laughs> That uh, yeah, they're 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 very expensive these days. Um, but I, I do know that you're not the only one who had one and no longer has one, so you don't have to feel too bad about it. So then you moved on to an Apple II. Yeah, I had an Apple II for the company primarily, and uh, Micro Magazine uh, started with uh, an October November issue, 1977. And on our cover, we had the first Apple computer that was uh, east of the Mississippi. We took a picture at our local computer store. And so Micro Magazine, which we published for well, until 1984, uh, covered 6502 products, the Kim One, the Sim One, the AIM-65, some Ohio scientific stuff, and a variety of things, uh, the Commodore PET. But probably half of our stuff was about the Apple because that was the most uh, interesting device for our type of people. So you used several different devices. I mean, you, you said the Kim one and, and the Apple II. And, uh, was, was the Apple II your favorite, or did you have a, another one that you preferred? Well, actually, my interest was less in the uh, Apple II and the programming, to be honest, than it was in the hardware. I'd started the Computerist, which is my company in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, to build initially power supplies and, and memory add-on boards for the Kim One. Uh, briefly, for those of you who've never seen a Kim One, when MOS technology, the inventors of the 6502, came out with their chip, they realized it was too late to just give people schematics and sell them a chip. So they came out with about an eight and a half by 11 board, completely made up, ready to run, called the Kim One, which had a little uh, hex pad, uh, six LED uh, displays, um, could talk to a tape recorder and so on. A pretty neat unit. And I got one actually second hand 
and I believe it was serial number 212 or something like that, quite low. So we made the memory boards, the video boards, and then we needed some place to advertise. And unfortunately, the only magazines then, like Byte, uh, were out of our price range, and they were not covering the 6502. So I decided to start my own magazine, primarily for marketing, and that's where the micro came from. And that's where the original eight-page What's Wearing the Apple article ran? Yeah, that ran in uh, 1979 in uh, issue number 15. Now, I happen to know that because I just went through my old issues, pulled out the issue, and today I scanned in the original article, uh, digitized it, and it's now up on our website for anyone to look at as an eight-page article. And I invite all your readers to uh, take a look. Well, great. Uh, that's definitely something I'll be checking out this weekend. So it looks like for a long time the, the micro was uh, successful, and then then what happened? What uh, what caused you to move on to other things? Okay, well, when micro started, the, the first issue or the first three issues were actually typeset on my kitchen table using the Diablo printer hooked up to this Kim 1, which had 1K of memory, in which I've written a program that could do some editing, uh, left and right justify, error correcting, and so on and so forth save it out of the cassette tape, and that's how we did the magazine. Then as the magazine got a little more popular, we went to a storefront print shop, and then probably about the second year, we had to actually go to a, uh, a real web press type thing with uh, full color and so on. We ended up with a circulation of about 40,000 at our peak. And what was really fun is about half of that was uh, subscribers, and about half of that was dealers. And we had a second floor office, so the magazines would come in. We'd get a chain gang to haul them all up the stairs. We'd package them in, you know, to dealers, 10, 20, 50, up to 100, box them, call UPS, they'd send a special truck, and then we'd actually slide the boxes down a wide banister, bounce them off a trampoline, and guide them into the UPS truck. <laughs> And we had some interesting people. Some of the earlier advertisers you may recognize. Well, Microsoft advertised with us. Mm -hmm. My wife, who was the accountant, wanted to cut them off because they were slow pay. Sierra Online, the game people, their very first advertisement was with Micro back when they were a mom-and-pop shop on their kitchen table. Um, but as time grew up, a lot of the companies they were dealing with grew up, and they went to advertising agencies and the advertising agencies wanted people with 100,000 circulation, 40,000 wasn't enough. So a number of things conspired just to make it, um, uh, plus the people who were reading Micro, uh, a lot of them had, had gotten what they needed. We provided a lot of the earliest information on like how to hook up your Apple, how to print from your Apple, how to have two decimal places in your business statistics, things like that, a lot of graphic programs. But bit by bit, Apple and other people, other groups were filling that need. So it sort of became unnecessary. So we decided to go into other things. Okay. And, but that wasn't the only thing that, that Micro Inc. did. I mean, you had uh, What's Where in the Apple, and it looks like you had a couple of other Apple II products as well. Yeah, we actually published about uh, a dozen books uh, under the Micro Inc. Inc. label. The main ones for the Apple were obviously uh, Watch Wearing the Apple, which sold 40,000 copies. 
we had a, um, since the article is so good, we don't want to keep reprinting the magazine, we took the best Apple articles and put them in a book called Mike Roy and the Apple, which included the diskette, so we had all the programs, and that was so popular we ended up with the Mike Roy and the Apple Volume 2 and the Mike Roy and the Apple Volume 3, and we ended up with a three-volume box set, which I think you have a copy of, Mike. I do, yes. And uh, we are considering uh, printing that later this year, dependent somewhere on how well the uh, ebook version of Watch Where in the Apple does. We also had a, uh, a three-volume set of The Best of Micro, which covered all the different things we were printing. We did some uh, things that combined a book with a disc and uh, half a dozen or a dozen programs for the VIC-20, the Commodore uh, 64, the Atari, the OSI, and a few other things. So we were quite busy. We had uh, quite a team at one point, did all of our own typesetting, and it was interesting. Okay. So so to get a little bit more specific uh, with the what's where in the Apple, how did it go from an eight-page article into the, the what is it, two or three-hundred-page book? That is a good story. I... I recognized the value of the uh, the article right away, and we got a lot of positive feedback from the readers. So I decided we should have a book. Uh, one of my uh, high school students, or he'd gone on to college, was up at Dartmouth, which is where uh, Professor Lubert taught, and he knew, knew of him anyway. So I had him go up and lobby uh, Dr. Lubert to do the book. Now, he initially wasn't too enthusiastic because it was going to be a lot of work, we kept on them. We, we commissioned them to do it, and uh, we had thought we'd get it out in about a year. It took almost three years to get the book, just the Atlas and the Gazetteer part done, and rather than waiting around for the guide to get finished, we published the 100-page Atlas and Gazetteer in a nice spiral-bound book, 8.5 by 11, that you could very nicely open on your table while you're working. It was almost two years later that uh, Lubert finally got the guide done, and we got that all typeset and ready to go. And we published that as a separate 150-page guide so the people who already had the Atlas and Gazetteer didn't have to buy it again. And then we also published the full book, which is about 250 pages combining the guide, the Atlas, and the Gazetteer. Again, that was a spiral-bound book in the early days. Right. Yeah, I remember that there were several different versions uh, that were available over time. I know there was one with like a purple cover and one had a green cover. Um, and I think those were without the Atlas or the Gazetteer. And then the, the one with the orange cover was the final one that had the had those two extra things. In the well, I think correct? I can correct you on that. Okay. Um, I can see it from here. The um, green one was the initial Atlas and Gazetteer. Ah, okay. 100 pages, which came out, I believe, in 1982. Then the uh, guide was published in a red cover, 150-page guide separately. And then the uh, blue book was the combined guide, Atlas and Gazetteer, which came out also in 84. Uh, I can't remember what the print run was. It's probably like 5,000 copies, and they sold out fairly quickly. But we went to reprint. We just couldn't afford the spiral bind. It cost as much for the spiral binding as it did for the uh, all the printing. So we went to the perfect bind, 
and came out with the uh, the book that most of you are probably familiar with, the Perfect Bound uh, Tan Cover. And that's the one that we uh, did probably 35,000 copies of. I see. So over, overall, you, you did sell... What, 50, 100,000 copies, it sounds like, maybe? About 40,000 copies total. But if you figure that we made maybe $10 a copy after printing and shipping and dealer discounts and all, that was a pretty good hit. Well, I, I'm I'm pretty sure you're not going to sell 40,000 copies of the PDF. No, I don't. <laughs> but, uh, but I bet you'll do pretty good. Yeah, the, money, the money, I'm doing, I'm, obviously money is nice, but also I sort of felt bad when I realized that so many people wanted. I was going online Googling and seeing how many questions were from people. Where can I get this information? Where can I get that information? And I knew the answer was watch where in the Apple, but people couldn't afford a thousand dollars a copy. So right, let's right. do it. And let's do it right. Well, yeah, it, what's where in the Apple is definitely one of the uh, the top books uh, as far as referencing. Um, and being able to find information, so I, I think this, I think the ebook uh, will, will really be a help to any Apple II users who need that that sort of reference as they're working. Um, now, for for those of you who are listening and wondering how um, Bob and I hooked up and how I found out about this, um, well, it's sort of an interesting tale. Bob, do you do you want to tell them how you you found me? Oh, I'll let you talk for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I had actually uh, made a PDF of one of Bob's books um, and posted it on one of my websites, uh, the Apple2Scans.net. I got a bunch of Apple II reference manuals and books and magazines there. And I got an email one day from Bob. Um, and basically, he asked me to remove it because it was violating his copyright. And I agreed to, and that was fine. I have no problem doing that. I certainly want to support people who are continuing to support the Apple II. Um, and it kind of occurred to me that this could be a good opportunity for, for both of us, um, for you to help you promote the upcoming ebook and for me, uh, to, well, to have you on the show and talk about, uh, you and your history with Micro Inc. and, and the book and everything else. Uh, so I want to thank you, Bob, for taking the time to sit down with me this evening. And I, I guess I, I can kind of wrap this up by uh, with one final question: What uh, what have you been doing um, since since the days of, of MicroInc? Uh, most of my time has been involved with um, either industrial or medical uh, electronics. I worked with a company that had a device for measuring a uh, number of physiological measures. Then I went off on my own and got an FDA-approved device for measuring muscle activity back in uh, 1990, approximately. Uh, and back then, I submitted a three-page application to the FDA and actually got approved. Then I uh, did a variety of things, and in uh, around 2000, 2001, came up with the first device for measuring human tremor, quantifying the frequency amplitude, percent of time you have tremor for people with Parkinson's, essential tremor, things of that nature. And when I applied for the FDA at that point, it ended up being a three-pound application. Things wow. have changed in 10 years. So I've been doing that for a while. I've just recently come up with a, uh, a better version. I've done some teaching. What else? I know there's been a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> can't always remember them. Uh, I am right now getting involved with the uh, Android, which I think is a fantastic uh, 
thing, a very open group, all the free software you can get and so on, a big market. And I'm trying to learn enough to uh, make my device called a tremorometer work not just on a, a PC, but on a tablet, uh, things of that nature. Okay. So I'll keep out of trouble. Now, do you still have an Apple II, or do you ever, and if you do, do you ever use it? No, I, uh, my Apple IIs went when the business went. I never, never really honestly got that involved with the Apple itself. In fact, the last time I really remember getting involved with the Apple was one of our units stopped working, and the people said that the local computer store wanted $150 to look at it and didn't know how much it would cost to fix. So I said, let me take a look at it. And the problem, we weren't getting any video signal out. So I looked at it in the schematics and traced back until I found a two-legged transistor. And I said, that doesn't look very good. So I replaced the transistor, and it came back to life. So it was a 20-cent solution instead of a $150 bill. And I felt proud of, proud of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a savings. Uh, well, Bob, thank you very much for coming on and talking to me this evening. Um, and we will continue to promote your book, and we look forward to getting a copy. Very good. And I appreciate the uh, chance to talk to you and uh, through you to your readers and listeners. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. We have a relatively short eBay section this month, having already discussed some of it during the news segment, such as the Houston Brothers Apple One and IMSI. But before we get rolling with the other auctions that caught our attention this month, I want to ask Rich, what are your eBay proclivities? Um, you mean what do I like? What do I like to go and search for and dig around on? Yeah, are you a buyer? Are you a seller? Do you put the CFFA on eBay? What do you think about other people putting the CFFA on eBay, etc.? Um, well, I do uh, between runs. I do from time to time dig out a few um, uh, CFFAs that were, were dead or didn't function properly. Uh, they get stuck in a box, and then when I'm looking for a little extra cash flow, sometimes I'll go and, and try to repair a few of them. Uh, strangely, I've had actually not much luck repairing them. Um, usually it, it ends up being uh, some defect in the printed circuit board, and if that defect is minor and visible, I can usually fix it, but uh, many times it's it's not – it's invisible or inside the board or under a chip or something. And the, uh, the, the effort required to fix it just becomes too high. But occasionally there'll be a board where the chip was mounted uh, incorrectly or there's a very minor short on some trace. And, and uh, so those, those have gone up on eBay in the past. Um, I, uh, there was a couple of uh, CFFA 3000s um, that went for an astounding amount of money. I, I, I almost felt you know, embarrassed that uh, the, the auction went that high, but um, you know, like three hundred and seventy dollars or some some ridiculous thing. I think we've talked about that very auction on this show. We did, yeah. Yeah, now that wasn't my auction; that was actually somebody else's. But I guess it just shows there was a lot of pent up demand. So I, I uh, you know, certainly it makes me feel good. But um, but I, I, you know, I want to try to keep these things out there so that people aren't paying you know four hundred dollars for them when I sell them for one fifty. And, and to uh, prohibit scalping, you limit purchases to two per household, right? Well, yes, I guess that is it prohibits scalping, and yeah, lets everybody get a chance to get one. Um, otherwise, there are a few people out there that will stock up and then sell them, um, you know, sell them on uh, eBay later on. So, yes, so I do a little bit of buying, a little bit of selling. I'm not super active. I probably have I don't know, fifty or sixty transactions total. 
over the last you know ten years, so uh, not too much. So you don't have a lot of rep then. Uh, reputation, I have a good reputation. I think it's a hundred percent, but um, but it's not. Yeah, there's not a lot of sales. It's not like those companies that are exclusively online stores with thousands upon thousands. Yeah, no, that's no. I don't. I don't get into that much. Um, I bought a telescope online, I think once, and I've, I've purchased a few other things, and I've sold various tidbits. I'll dig in my closet and find something to sell um, from time to time. But uh, I did sell my. Uh, I did put together a Kim One. I mean, I bought a Kim One, a Rev A Kim One that um, I bought and fiddled around with for I don't know a year, and then resold. And I sold it for just slightly more than I paid for it. Um, I did put together a uh, Apple One. The uh, who did the original Apple One clone? Um, Gabley, um, Steve Gabley was that his name? Doesn't ring a bell. It was the the Optronics. Oh, yeah. the, the, the Optronics. Yep. Board. Yep. And I did uh, I did buy one of those and mount. I had it mounted on a plexiglass frame and added a ceramic sixty five hundred two and a CFA one and sold that whole thing on eBay for for a little bit of a profit. So. But that, that's about it. When I do a Google search for Steve Gabley Optronics Apple One, I get a hair transplant surgeon in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I know it's Optronics. I'm not 100% sure on the on his name. Um, so this next item generated quite a bit of talk on some of the forums. This is a an Apple II 8 megahertz ultra-warp accelerator card. It's not... It's not a chip replacement uh, like the Zip chip. Um, uh, it functions more like the Transwarp card. Um, the interesting thing about this, one of the interesting things, is that these other cards that I've seen, um, the Transwarp and, and some of the others, they all operate at 3.6 megahertz. This card actually um, operates at 8 megahertz. So you're, you're getting the, um, the speed of the, the Zip chip. I, I think the technology is different. Um, there was some discussion, especially, and, uh, of course, uh, Michael Mahone was involved, so it gets pretty technical, uh, but I guess there's some difference in the way it does caching where it doesn't speed up um, AppleSoft Basic or anything like that. The other thing about this card is that there's only one of them. Um, the guy, and I, I exchanged some emails with the, the seller. He, he's based out of Germany, um, but he's only planning to make, he only makes this one. And so this generated some discussion on the forums about how he's a patent troll and he's doing this just to keep a hold on the patent, um, which, I mean, I guess if if he wants to do that, that's up to him. But I, I was kind of disappointed that uh, he was only going to make the one available. It did end up selling for, I think, $320 or so. I consider a patent troll to be someone who owns a patent and protects it aggressively by suing other people, whereas this guy, it's his own patent. Yeah, it's he. He's a, a patented the design, and I guess in Germany and some of these other countries, in order to to keep a patent, you have to actually make and sell a product based on it. You can't just say this is my patent and then never do anything with it. And so that's where they're calling him a patent troll because this card was made so that he could continue to hold on to this rather than um, as a product that he actually wants to sell to anybody. Well, why would he want to hold on to the patent if he doesn't want to sell it? I don't know. And given that it went for three twenty-five, it seems like he has. It seems like he's sitting on a gold mine. You would think so. So this design doesn't look relatively new. It looks like it was designed just based on the fact that he's using old TTL logic with sockets and dips, dip chips. What would a modern card be using if not that? Well, I mean, typically it'd be using surface mount devices and 
I mean, unless he's selling this as like a kit, right? You build yourself. I don't know what advantage there'd be to designing a modern card with with uh, dip chips and and sockets. Here's what he said in an email that that I uh, I sent him a message on. Um through eBay asking for more details. He said the Ultra Warp is a new slot-based accelerator with an onboard crystal oscillator. Uh, this is realized without need of custom ICs because of the numerous TUI soft switches, uh, DHGR, Oxmam, 80 column, Ramworks, etc. A specific, uh, a specified number of chips is necessary. IC lettering is clearly legible for easy replacement. Like the Transwarp, Ultra Warp does not use the caching technique. The 65816 CPU acts as a 65802 CPU in PLCC package with 65K of maximum address- addressable memory. Programmers can control Ultra Warp from their programs by writing to certain memory locations. And he lists those. Ultra Warp is a DMA card and must be disabled when using other DMA devices. There is no pseudo-ROM Apple uh, space for AppleSoft on the card. The Ultra Warp logic is a single custom chip and certainly offers greater ease of operations and higher operating speed, but is not planned at the moment for production run. At first sight, 8 MHz is not bad. He's German, so his English isn't that great. Probably better than our German. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So I don't know if that illuminates anything for you. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I followed that 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 reasoning, but nothing wrong with doing something in the sort of Apple II, you know, vintage way. You know, it's easy to follow, it's easy to fix, those sort of things. And he could sell it as a kit, I guess, if he wanted to. But he doesn't want to sell it. Yes, he says, at the moment I, only, I offer only this card, and I'm not planning to offer... Cards on a large-scale run, many law restrictions in Germany for individual persons and business. I am planning Ultra Warp 1.9. Maybe he could license the technology to an American? Might be an idea. I think Real Computers is the company to go after this. Yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, Vince does a lot of nice kits, and he's always using DIP uh, form factor chips, you know, just for that reason, right, to keep it easy to keep it, not as easy, but keep it possible to build yourself. That can be their new slogan. Brill Computers, we're the dip guys. <laughs> Actually, have you seen his slogan on his website? I don't know when he put this up. I just noticed it for the first time this past week. He sells so many different replicas and remakes of old machines that his slogan is, if you can't get the real thing, get the Brill thing. Oh, no. <laughs> cool. I wonder if he paid an advertising agency for that. I gotta, I gotta imagine one of his customers came up with that. He's like, oh, "That's fantastic!" And he just <laughs> stole it. Funny. And the other hardware item that I that I found on eBay was actually a, a joystick for the Apple IIe. Now I've not seen a joystick like this, and this is um, Rich. This is another one that I just added. But this joystick appears to have, an, in addition to the stick, a couple of spinner knobs, two big buttons, and some other stuff. Um, it just looked kind of cool, and I had never seen anything like it before. Um, it's available from seller uh, Lewer, L-I-W-E-R, 2006. Um, he sold uh, four of them. He originally had five available. There's one left uh, for buy it now of $29.99. Because that Apple III joystick isn't backward compatible? No, they don't work back and forth. And that's an Apple II joystick? It is, yeah. And Lewer 2006 actually had another item that I put on the list here. He so he had a copy of Bill Budge's Space Album uh, for sale. It was a buy now of two hundred dollars. 
uh, a little pricey for me, but it was kind of just kind of cool to see it. The the original uh, software that one it was one of the original Apple II software packages that shipped you know back in in the Ziploc baggie rather than the box. But there was another copy of that that did sell for sixty one dollars. And this is another one of the California Pacific Computer Company titles. And I don't recall these games actually. Did you guys play any of these? Uh, I didn't play Space Album. I, I have used a lot of other Bill Budge titles, uh, Raster Blaster and, and uh, Pinball Construction Set. Ditto here. I played Raster Blaster, and I've emailed with Bill Budge a couple times, but I don't think I'm familiar with these particular games in detail. I, I'm familiar with all the classic Apple II games, like, as I mentioned before, Load Runner and Choplifter and The Magic Candle, but I'm, I think that... By the time I was able to appreciate having an Apple II, that's around the same time the 8-bit Nintendo came into my life, and I kind of started gravitating more toward that because it was just a little bit flashier. Hmm. The final item that we had in the eBay section uh, this month, it looks like it was all me this time, uh, was a uh, an original copy of a Calibeth from, uh, from the California Pacific and it was one that uh, chipped in a baggie, and it sold for $1,285.13. And I bring that up because we had previously mentioned on another show the copy that sold on the original, uh, that, that came on the original cassette tape that uh, Richard Garriott bagged by hand and went down and sold at his local computer store. Hmm. So I think it was probably, if I recall, it was about the same price as this one went for um, that is one of the disadvantages to doing a podcast this way as opposed to doing live and only doing it once a month is that a lot of the stuff that we talk about is closed by the time that uh, the, the the episode becomes available. Yeah, that's a good point. Other podcasts like Retro Computing Roundtable and Retro MacCast, they air more frequently than we do, and they also cover eBay auctions. I wonder how many of their listeners actually end up bidding on auctions as a result of hearing the show. I mean, even our show, which airs only monthly, I've heard of people who only listen to our show once a year. They download 12 episodes and listen to them all while they're driving to Kansas Fest. Hmm. You know, so at that point, it doesn't matter how often we publish if that's how often they listen. Yeah, kind of makes you wonder whether we should continue the eBay section. Oh, I think we should. What about you, Rich? You're more often a listener than you are a guest. What's your take on having this segment of the show? Um, I think even, uh, you know, even when you come up, and learn about these auctions after they've closed. It's still fascinating. You know, $1,200 for this game. I, I I don't understand what specific about this game makes it worth so much, but um, it's obviously that something to do with the fact that this, uh, you know, it's getting older and older and older and and, and uh, it's becoming an antique. And well, I, I think in this case, Ultima, you know, Richard Garriott is obviously Lord British, and he did the Ultima series, and, and the Ultima stuff is, has become very collectible over the years. And Calabeth is the first game that he published. Um, he wrote a bunch before and gave them away to his friends, but this is the first one that he actually sold. Um, and there, over the years, there there were many re-released versions of Calabeth, but the originals that he sold through Computer uh, California Pacific Computer Company uh, are very hard to come by these days. I see. So I think that's kind of where that price is. But it's interesting to to hear that our eBay section is still a value. So, 
Yeah, I think so. I, uh, you know, how many games would fetch this kind of price? Do you think? Uh, you know, how many different titles? I think that's a very a very limited selection. I find the value in this section of the show to be not advertising potential auctions that our listeners can b- bid on and buy, but just as a springboard for discussion about specific Apple II artifacts. We, that's originally what we intended the retro view section of the show to do, and we haven't really kept up with that because the show is so long without that section that we really don't need it to have substantial conversation about specific hardware and software. So this eBay section is a nice way to look back at what has been and is still of interest. Okay, from that standpoint, I can certainly see the value in keeping it up then. Ha! You've been pwned. You got me. Finally. (laughs) For a few minutes anyway. Well, in that case, I think we should retire undefeated, at least from my perspective, and uh, call this a wrap. I'm good with that. All right. I think Rich has some boards to get back to soldering anyway. <laughs> yeah, luckily the soldering is is all done. Um, no, oh, good. No, it's just the I actually did solder. I think run one and run three uh, of this uh, of the CFFA and never again. Right? It was, <laughs> it was, that was two hundred boards with the soldering, and it, wow. it just takes you know too too much time. So now they're all machine assembled, and you know the quality's higher, and uh, uh, of course it costs more, but it's it's worth it. Great. Yeah, I was, I was wondering if that would drive up the cost. Just like Juice GS, I spent four hours last night stuffing envelopes, and I know that there are services out there that can do it for me, but it's not going to be any cheaper than doing it myself. Well, Ken, your writing alone drives up the cost of Juice GS. So. <laughs> That's right. Mike, did you say that my writing drives up the cost? Yes, your contributions are so valuable that you have to charge more. But I'm the only writer who doesn't get paid. It's funny how that works, isn't it? Um, yeah, no, it does drive up the cost. I, I um, after uh, much hunting around for uh, a vendor to do the assembly, um, I found one that'll do it for sort of in the thirteen to fifteen dollar range, you know, per board, right? So, it, but if you just take the first one you come across, you may be paying twenty twenty five dollars a board. You, you know, you got to shop around just like you would for anything else. Well, Rich, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I hope that you've enjoyed your time here. Uh, very much. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for showing up. And I was joking. I really don't need my CFFA to be the first or the 500th as long as it goes out sometime this calendar year. I'll be a very satisfied customer, I'm sure. Well, I, I sure hope so. And um, I think um, I, I think that uh, since the design didn't change and just have some small firmware updates, that um, I can pretty much guarantee the thing's going to work. <laughs> I'd be surprised if it didn't. <laughs> Me too. Uh-huh. Great. And I look forward to when I can buy your next product in person at Kansas Fest. Yes, I will uh, redouble my efforts to uh, come to the next uh, Kansas I suggest you re-triple them. Re-triple it's them, that, yes. It's that important. All right. Great. <laughs> thanks, Rich. It's All been right. great talking with you. Thanks, guys. See you, Rich. Bye. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net.